I don't want a pickle Just want to ride on my motorcycle Hello everybody and welcome. This is the NoCo Moto Podcast Reboot. I'm your host, MotoGP. With me is your other host, Swiggy. You. Coming to you from a new NoCo Moto headquarters studio, which is Swiggy's new place up here even further deeper into, into NoCo. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You, you, you now live... What, three quarters of a mile from me? Uh, a little bit more than that, but close, yeah. Yeah. Well, basically what that Ten means blocks. is we're going to be able to record episodes a lot more conveniently later into the night, which means more drinking. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> One thing the show probably didn't need. But you know what? You're getting it whether you like it or not. <laughs> so, having said that, let's um, let's crack this PBR hard coffee. Yeah, or as I like to call it, gas station tiramisu in a can. Yeah, I, I think that's <laughs> fair. Let's, let's let's take a big drink on microphone. Because that's what this new era of Nokomoto is going to be about. Less editing. You know? <laughs> oh, wait. So I forgot to do something. Um, so I'm just... Um, see, we haven't recorded for a while. And there's a bunch of interns that they've sent us. And we just don't need them. They've been kind of building up. No, d- put your mouth on the gun. There we go. Okay, <laughs> I'll, 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 that's not all. But you know, there's there's some more. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> there's not going to be any more interns. This is going to be a little bit more. Um, these episodes are going to be a little bit more raw. I think moving forwards, because well, ah, I love doing this show, but I don't love the editing anymore. And I think we're good enough at it now. Yeah, we can just kind of get away with not doing that. And for anyone that has a problem with that or notices a decrease in quality, I don't think you will. And if you do, uh, it's not my problem. It's a show that we pay to produce that you consume. But that out of the way, we're going to have some fun. So the last time... I spoke to everybody. I told them how I was going to go on an iron butt ride. And I did, you know, and I want to talk about that for a minute because it was a big thing for me. Right. So I didn't just do an iron, butt; I did it on the gold wing, which is a little bit of a daring feat. You know, it's one thing to ride a thousand miles in 24 hours. It's different to do it on a vintage bike. I mean, it is a gold wing, but it's a 78 gold wing, which is a different beast. Well, it is and it isn't, because we found out it's 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 not just a touring bike. It is a very, very good touring bike. But it's still from 1978. Now, it turns out that my particular 78 gold wing 
partly because I'm really into working on it and doing the maintenance and making sure everything's up to spec, and partly because it's a Honda Goldwing, is bulletproof, it seems. Right? Well, interesting. The only part that failed was a modern part. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that. So, well, yeah, let's get into that, because that happened, uh, what, a week before I left? Week and a half? Uh, it wouldn't start, well, it kind of started, didn't want to start as I was trying to leave work about a week and a half before the ride. And you came over and I was like, oh, we got to go, we got to go over to Windsor and pick up the gold ring. There's something wrong with it, but we'll figure it out. And we figured out that the, the main fuse was sort of fucked, but it was really hard to see that it was fucked. Now, I knew that it was fucked because I spent maybe 50 hours in total dealing with electrical issues on the CB1000. Okay. I know <laughs> from memory that entire that entire wiring diagram. It's very similar. Yeah. So, who uh we replaced the well Okay, so the main fuse on that bike was one of those old school, just strips of metal screwed into a little plastic holder. So we replaced it with a newer inline fuse that was very, very close. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it was only a $5 part, but whatever. So I, you know, we kind of put it together just with, um, uh, what do you call them? Heat shrinks. We kind of like just twist them together, put heat shrinks on it. Didn't what did we use to shrink them? I can't remember. Uh, I don't know if I was there for that. I think we just screwed it on. Oh, did I put the heat shrinks on myself later then? Yeah. Okay. I think I did like kind of a really quick solder on them and then put heat shrinks later. Anyway, so about uh well not about the the two so the day before i left on this iron butt ride i was riding it around and it was acting a little bit sketchy on some starts it was one of those things where like a couple times it didn't want to start but i just kind of like you know this move where like you hit the starter and there's nothing and then you just kind of like lift a butt cheek up and then let all your weight down and then it works again and you're like oh okay Right. It did that a couple times before I left and it didn't really want to um, it wasn't charging very well. But it was still showing like, I don't know, like twelve and a half volts or something. So I was like, OK, fine, whatever. So uh, what I did do was I. Um, I went back, I took those heat shrinks off. And dad and I um, redid, we didn't redo the salts, but we put some new crimp connectors on that main fuse, whatever, right? So the night before I'm going to leave, or the evening before I'm going to leave, it's like 7.30 in the evening. I'm just taking the bike on one last circle around town to make sure everything's operating correctly before I go on this trip. And I'm airing up the tires, doing all these things, right, that you do before you go on a trip. And... I'm sitting there airing up the tires, making sure the, the, the pressure is just perfect, you know. And there's a guy on a scooter in the middle of the road outside the gas station just stuck there. And there's a minivan pulled up behind him, and then a cop comes up to talk to him. And I'm like, okay. So I roll up. 
And after a few minutes on the scene, I'm like, no, you don't need to jump it. No, stop doing that. Stop doing this, whatever. And what happened was he had just bought this scooter. Some sort of really cheap, fucked up, Chinese, awful scooter for who knows how much. And it had like fake Piaggio stickers on it and all sorts of things. It said like Vespa on one side. It said like Typhoon something on the other side. It was a fucking mess. And so, oh, man. <laughs> it's just remembering this. So I basically he didn't know that he needed to pull in the brake lever for his starter to work. Right. Because it's a CBT scooter. You can't just pull the gas and hit the starter because once it fires up, you're just going to go flying off. Right. You have to be holding the brake. It doesn't make sense otherwise. So I let him know that whatever he's off. It's all good. So all of this has been foreshadowing for the ride. Right. So I get up at four in the morning. And. I leave. Greeley, I go through Windsor, through Fort Collins, up to Laramie, and then that's, um, oh my gosh, what interstate is that that goes through Wyoming? 85? I think that's right. No. No, 85 is the state road. The interstate. Oh, uh, 80, sorry. 80, yes. So take 80 to Salt Lake City. I think I made it like 380 miles or something before I even took my helmet off. I just rode, stopped, put gas in the bike, got back on the bike and rode. I mean, I didn't spend more than four minutes at a gas station till I was 300 and something miles in. I, I just was making unbelievable time. I left at 4.07 in the morning. No, no, I left at 4.11 in the morning. I'll, I'll explain that later. Anyway, I left at 411 and uh, I got to I got into Salt Lake City at well, I don't know if it was 11 or noon. I can't remember how the time changes worked out because there's an hour time difference. Right. But I pull in and uh, well, I should say a little bit of something about riding that, you know, you, know, you leave it. The, I love to do these iron butts like. The philosophy is, is your, your time's going to get all messed up no matter what you do, right? So front load a lot of your dark riding if you can. Yeah. And uh, and just kind of, you know, make sure you get enough sleep and then just freaking go. And, you know, as the sun's coming up, I'm going down the highway and I'm just kind of like in the zone. You know, just for whatever reason, I was there. I had my phone loaded up with, so I kind of got my phone in sort of a, like I wasn't taking any calls or anything. It was just Bluetooth music loaded up on it. So from me leaving my house to Salt Lake City was nothing but the entire Beatles catalog. And then that probably lasted 100 miles past Salt Lake City. So if you want to know how long the Beatles entire catalog will last you on a road trip, It'll be at least 600 miles. So that was pretty cool. Good just to know. Listening to all that, just going through like the high country up through, you know, from Wyoming into Salt Lake City. I'm there with the truckers, man. And we're just kind of in perfect harmony. You know, 
there's all the the people in their cars kind of zoned out, but we're really paying attention. We're really kind of in the flow of things. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just feeling like the king of the road. Like nothing can stop me. The bike was absolutely perfect. You know, everything had been serviced. Everything had been new. Every, I'd done everything to this bike. You know, I put a new tire on the back. I took the whole final drive apart and re-greased everything. I, I did I did every bit of maintenance to this bike. And ooh, I pull in to this Maverick um, in Salt Lake City. And I'm like, okay, I've earned myself a 30-minute break, right? So I go in. I take a piss, I buy a water, uh, I think I bought a sandwich, and I go back out to the bike, I fill it up, hit the starter, turn the key, I mean, nothing, nothing, no lights, no anything. Oh, I try to jump the bike from a car just to see, nothing. I, I try everything I can think of, nothing, nothing. Oh. It was terrible. I thought, no, how did I make it almost exactly halfway? You know, I, I'm stopped. Like I pulled in, the bike was operating perfect and now nothing, right? Like how was this possible? I just, I couldn't figure it out. Oh, at this point, like a good Samaritan came by and he's trying to help me figure this out. He pulled the side covers off the bike and broke all the plastic tabs on them, which I wanted to strangle him. But I, he tried to give me like 150 bucks too. And I was like, no, good Samaritan law. It's okay. But this one hero really helped me out. So there's this guy there in the parking lot who was selling his uh, CRF 450 to somebody else. So he had a truck and a ramp. So he came over after like, a while and saw my predicament and he's like, Hey, maybe I can give you a ride somewhere. You know, we can. So me and him and a total stranger pushed this totally dead 78 Goldwing fully dressed up his ramp into the back of this. It wasn't lifted, but it, I mean, you don't really realize how tall an F-150 is until you have to get a gold wing into the back of it. Yeah. And there's no power from the bike helping you up the ramp. You're just running and hoping. And I swear, this guy that we got in the back, like, just barely got a hold of the brake. <laughs> it was it was by slight margins. But well, I even remember, like, when we pulled the gold wing off of the Ranger... Like, I was panicking because those brakes were in such terrible condition. Oh, it was sliding like, down. I, yeah, I couldn't <laughs> squeeze the front brake hard enough to stop it from sliding down the ramp. It's a very dynamic operation. Yeah. The slide doesn't bother me so much. Just as I know it's something I can handle. It's not like running away out of control, but... I, I know the the brake slide. I've experienced it so many times. <laughs> I mean, we move a lot of bikes, but anyway. Um, so 
he gave me a ride to a Harley dealer. So there's this Harley dealer in Salt Lake City. It's a really cool building. It, I don't know what it used to be. It looked like it was some sort of old farm building of some kind. It's all metal and tin and rusted and whatever. Really cool. And you go inside, it's all modern and very, very Harley. I go into the service department. I'm like, hey, I've got an old Goldwing. And with the words Goldwing, they were like, no. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's 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 an old 70. It's a, it's a GL 1000. These aren't complicated. He's like, no. I'm like, look, it's got a very simple electrical problem. I don't know what it is, but I just need a professional. And he's just like, no. And I'm like, no, but... There's got to be someone. Is someone on break that wants to make 50 bucks? I mean, anything. Come on. A hundred dollars. What What do you need? I just, I just need probably 15 minutes of somebody's time to help me figure this out. Because whatever it is, it's simple. It's not the battery. It's some wire somewhere, something that's fucked up. And it was working perfectly. It's not a mechanical problem. And he just went, no. We, we can't do that. And I'm like, bro. And he's like, uh, try the Honda place up the road. So I, so I call the Honda. Well, I actually asked him. I was like, they call the Honda place for me like right now. Like, I, you know, just let's do this. And I say to the Honda guy, it's not a mechanical problem. It's electrical. It's an old 78. Can you help me out? He's like, I don't know. Bring it up here. If you get here fast enough, we'll see. So we speed up the highway like three quarters of a mile to Monarch Power Sports in Salt Lake City. This is a big spot here for Monarch Power Sports because they employ a genius and they are super duper top notch people. And the next or first new motorcycle that I ever buy is going to be from them. Even though it's going to be a pain in the ass to buy a new vehicle over state lines, I don't give a fuck because these people fucking earned my business. So I pull the Goldwing around the back of the place. The head of the service department comes out with his tech. And this is where things this okay, this is a this is a life lesson you know we've talked about how it's important to have that cup of tea or have that beer while you're working on the bike this mechanic was such a zen master he didn't even need the beer so when you get a vehicle or even just a lawnmower or whatever that has a problem with it everyone sits around it bullshitting trying to come up with some sort of reason why it's not working some sort of theory of how it's broken and how to fix it and almost everyone is just trying to sound smart enough to be in the conversation right yeah and so i had been sitting and thinking about this for a few hours at this point you know, cause I'm thinking, Hey, I've still got 500 plus miles to go. Right. <laughs> like, and it's getting, it's, it's four o'clock in the afternoon at this point. 
and and I I gotta I gotta start I gotta get back on the road and start making time. Now I'd come to peace with the idea that maybe I'd have to just leave the bike there and get a motel room somewhere or whatever. But if it was possible, I was gonna get back on the road. You know, because I'd spent two and a half hours at the gas station just trying to fix this bike, and I had taken this bike quite a bit apart at this point because I was just riding away from home and going back to home. So I just filled my saddlebags with shit tons of tools. I had solder and soldering iron and I had I had six and twelve point short and long in in eighth inch and quarter inch. I had everything. I had all sorts of specialty tools with me. I mean, I had I just two saddlebags filled with tools. But I couldn't. Anyway, so this bike's in the back of this truck. Everyone's just spitting out bullshit ideas. I thought I was pretty close where I was like, well, maybe the ignition just fucked out. Maybe just the the ignition barrel itself is fucked. You know, we're turning the key, but it's just not making contact anymore, which would have explained all of the problems with the bike. You know, and the guy kind of was like, you know, he heard that theory from me and he he kind of like squinted his eyes like as if to say, yeah, that's plausible, but I don't it's know. It's an easy test, though. But anyways, I'm how is it an easy point. test, though, like without cutting wires? Because you just measure you just put a multimeter across the across the solenoid. The, the ignition solenoid. No one even ever had to do that. So in the end, he listened to everyone. Everyone's sitting there just spitting out idiotic theories, basically. Right. And he listened to the story, right? And this is the part you've heard before. You know, he says, you know, where'd you come from? What'd you do? What happened? All that sort of stuff. And that's all he does is he asks like three or four questions like that. Everyone just can't stop talking. No one else can shut the fuck up. Everyone is just spitting out idiotic theories left and right. Like crazy, implausible, stupid stuff. And everyone at this point had looked directly at the fuse, taken the fuse out, looked at it, held it up to the light or whatever. And he held it up to the light and he saw something that no one else saw. And he saw it because he'd been listening to the story. And the story was that I came from this incredibly dry area. And this fuse was fucked to begin with. But it didn't matter because it's so dry here. And then I rode through this incredibly moist area where it was hot. And then I stopped the bike. And it going from very hot to very cold. It sucked in tons of moisture, and this thing was wet all over inside, just completely filled with moisture. But you just couldn't notice it unless, unless you, you were looking for it. Unless you were looking for it. And it sustained itself the whole time coming through the area because it had current going through it and it was getting hot. Right. But as soon as it cooled down at the gas station, yeah, as soon again, as it got to rest, uh-huh. then so, yeah, if I was only stopped for five minutes, it probably would have started again. 
But right. I just let I decided I'd earn myself that 30 minute break. And this is the part of the story that he heard. You know, he really heard the story and deduced exactly what was wrong. He just turns and he goes, hey, I asked like Jeff if he's got another one of these in his toolbox. And he comes back and everyone's like, it's not the fuse. But everyone's thinking, well, you know, we might as well try it. And of course, the bike fires right up. You know, and it's all handshakes and and they're all like, oh, so where are you staying tonight? And I was like, fuck that. I'm going back to Denver. And they're like, no. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, after that, I rode in the wrong direction for about 100 miles. (laughs) So with my four hours of being broken down. uh, When I finally got back to my place it was 4.07. So I left at 4.11 in the morning. I got back at 4.07. And I had gone 1,228 miles total. So I didn't just do an iron butt. I was on pace to do the full um, bun burner 1,500 miles in 24 hours. Like, is it the bun burner? I thought it was the saddle sore. I, I thought the saddle sore was the 1,024 and the bun burner was 1,500. But I, they have dumb names for all. Anyway, if you go to the Iron Butt website, the 1,500 miles in 24 hours is one of those rides that's listed as like extreme, right? Now, I didn't actually do it, obviously, but I was absolutely on pace to do it with the riding that I did that day. And given how, you know, it took me that much time to do it. And I would have been riding that whole time. Had I not been broken down, I believe at least on that bike, I could do a 1500 mile day, but easily. Well, not easily. It's a, doing fifteen hundred yeah. miles a day is not something you just do. But I, I think it's well within, with mm-hmm. no mechanical breakdown issues. I think, I think I'm all over that on that bike, uh, especially the way it's set up and the way it's set up for me. Right. Right. There's something about the geometry of that bike, with the seat being the way that it is. Because that seat that I've got on it too, is well, you know this. I paid a lot. It's an original 78 Goldwing seat, but it had clearly never been in use until I got it. Yeah. Like, so the foam and everything, it's just good. I mean, I know foam degrades over time, but this this seat has not had 40 years of people sitting on it. So it's a good seat. And, and for my money, it's hard to beat a Honda 70s flat seat. They're just good. You know, uh, the the highway pegs I put on it and oh, my gosh, the music, the music really got me through it. So like so 600 miles of the Beatles. Then I listened to uh, all three albums from Big Star, which uh, there's something about Utah and Big Star really goes well together. And then I listened to every Capitol Records recording from Buck Owens. Then I listened uh, as I got back into Colorado and I passed um, um, Fruta uh, for the rest of Colorado. 
it was all live fish. And there was, and that's when it got dark. And there, I don't know, just in the mountains with the highway lights in the dark, live fish. It was, it was perfect. The most challenging part of the ride, and I've never run into this before. Um, I ran into it again when we took our our fifteen hundred mile ride through the southwest. Um, also, this since we, we've talked to listeners, um, staying hydrated. Man, yeah. I didn't need to drink anything till I got to Salt Lake City. And then it was like every 80 miles, I had to stop and just chug a giant bottle of water. And I never took a piss until I got back to, um, well, I think I took a piss when I got into Salt Lake City. And then I, and, and, but it was, it was just like, and then, and then not till I got home and I was just chugging water nonstop. I, ooh, it was a thing. But anyway. It was very spiritual in a strange way because, you know, I don't believe in the supernatural. I don't believe in, um, you know, meaningful coincidences and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, I held out that scooter rider right before I left with this very simple, obvious problem. I had a sort of similar thing happen with me on the ride. And the whole thing just kind of like renewed a love of a certain kind of writing and writing community that I was feeling really down on. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a couple weeks left in the year where a lot of people can still do this. I think the, the A to A just thousand mile circle or even just 500 mile circle or something. I, I bring all this up because I think if you have the means to do this in the next month, while the weather's still legitimate for it right or if all you own is a scooter and you just do a 200 mile circle or whatever i as long as you spend the vast majority of the day on the bike completely by yourself i think it's really worth doing because every iron butt ride that we ever did before this was the two of us together and our tandem system and I still believe in our tandem system. I think the two of us together could crush a 1,500-mile day as well. But there was definitely something to just being completely out there on my own, especially just in the middle of Utah, you know, going through Mo- like by Moab and all that stuff. I mean, and of course, I-70 from from the middle of Utah all the way to Denver is just you know, they say that you want to avoid interstate on big trips, except for I seventy from from Utah to Denver. It if is if you can hit if oh. you can hit I seventy in the middle of the day with no traffic, highly recommend it. Oh yeah, because it's the best backroads country you've ever seen, but with all the big sweeping turns of the backroads and interstate speeds and, and, and stop off conveniences. Yeah. El- huge elevation changes, huge color and scenery changes. I mean, just the most dramatic, dramatic setting you've ever seen. And it's great, too, because it's it's all evergreen forest in Colorado and it's all like red rock desert in Utah. So it's 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 not even like, oh, you were there in the fall. You should have been here in the summer. Anyway, 
Okay, it's been half an hour. I've babbled on, but I had to tell people how it went. Now it's what everyone's been waiting for. Best worst bike in the world this week. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. All right. For those of you that have forgotten how this works, each week, well, except for the highest that we took, means we each pick a different motorcycle to be the best and the worst bike in the world this week. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's a bit of a surprise now. Um, there's a little bit of a disclaimer that comes with it. That is, you know what? You might get your feelings hurt and you need to be prepared to deal with that because we might pick a vehicle that you like or dislike and uh, throw it in a little bit of a different light than you're comfortable with. Well, it's time to put on your big girl pants and just kind of live with it. And, you know, remember, smoking's come out of vogue, but, uh, you know, the Surgeon General's warnings on cigarette packs and, you know, you know how Canada takes them really seriously and by law it has to take up like 60% of the packaging and they've got like the pictures of the diseased lungs and, and the rotten teeth. Well, it turns out like Lithuania takes them even more seriously and in large friendly letters prints there's no crying in motorcycles on the packet so with that swiggy you have worst bike in the world this week yes are you ready to reveal it i am okay oh my goodness my sound effects okay (laughs) all right and the worst bike in the world this week is the BMW K75. Okay. So they did an inline four of this as well, right? They did. They did the K1. And in fact, they did the K100 first, which was a transverse inline four. Okay, hold on. When we bring up a lot of these bikes, we just dive instantly into a lot of just weird minutia of the bike. This is one of those ones that I feel we're doing listeners a disservice unless we give a full breakdown, not really of specs, but of the details of what this bike really is. We need to mention. Okay, so I should I should specify exactly what's going on with this bike so this bike was from 85 to 93 or 94 yeah and when i i should specify it's not just simply a transverse inline four it is a transverse horizontal inline four it's a horizontal flat Essentially, yes, but with all the cylinders in one direction. It's like the left half of a Goldwing motor. Yes. <laughs> and in fact, it is, an, it is in fact the left half of a GL1500 motor, essentially. Right, but that's a dumb idea. 
Well, it is the worst bike in the world this week. Right. <laughs> yeah, so imagine a Goldwing motor. You got your Boxer 6, but it's just half of You just that. chopped it in half and shifted it over to balance the weight. Inexplicably and half of a Goldwing motor. It's so yeah. dumb. So, I feel like we you need a little bit more history on this which is this is a very similar history of the k1 but we're just going back in time a little bit where we're talking about bmw starting to lose market share as the inline four motors start to get more refined you know from the late 70s we've got the gs's and then going forward you know we had we've had the cb750 we've had other cbs We've had the the GSs, and really the inline fours are really coming online. And the yeah, old the, the Yamaha XS motors and, and and the XS750 having success with a, an inline three. It's right. it's obvious that that experimentation is going to be rewarded a little bit. Upping displacement's going to be rewarded. Right. So the the inline motors, in order to be that are really delivering power per you know power per dollar are really starting to get refined and having a flat twin or a v twin at this time is really just not paying off because once you know there's any kind of new refinement the inline motors really take off just because they're so cheap and they're so quick to manufacture. Well, yeah, and all the V all the V twins that the Japanese are trying to make are completely bombing. Your Vulcan seven hundreds and all that kind of stuff. It's just it's finding no love. A cup you get your Magnas with some V fours, okay? Right. Your but your GS, but your GS seven fifty, your GS eleven hundred, all the Kawasaki's bread and butter. They're all just crushing, and. BMW is in this weird position where they say, "Well, I'll repeat it from the uh, from the K the fact from the K one worst bike in the world uh, segment is for those of you who don't know, BMW stands for Bavarian Motor Works, and if you're not aware culturally, Bavaria." is essentially the most conservative state in all of Germany. Yeah, if it was an American company, it would be called the Kentucky Motor Company. Or the Missouri Motor Company. Right. Like, it's... It is the absolute most conservative state in all of Germany. Yeah, we have this idea of all these all these people, like all, all the employees at BMW are like the uh, the cast of of sprockets from snl right? <laughs> <laughs> they're like now is the time we engineer oh then we take a break to dance and 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 drink crazy beer and do all their 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 very their very modern things but it is the bavarian motor company right right so <laughs> so, so. BMW is kind of between a rock and a hard place because their whole brand is built around this conservative image. 
but they're just totally losing international market share. So within Germany, they want to say, well, we're still going to produce all the bikes you love, but it's so conservative that they're in a position where it's like, well, we're still going to buy the box twins, but if you dare produce any inline motor, we're, we're going to totally forsake your brand completely. Which is kind of a little insane, because what else are they going to buy? Yeah. But that's the marketing position they were in. That's Those are the forces they were up against. So, BMW produced the K100, which was technically an inline-four motor, but... Rather ha- rather than have it be across the frame, upright, they made it horizontal, and they made it transverse. It was like you took a Dodge motor and just knocked it over on its side. And then kicked it in the head. Yeah. <laughs> so that it spun around another 90 degrees. But... This is actually kind of a little bit of a cool concept. And I don't hate them for trying it. I think it was a good, it was a cool idea. It was a brave idea. And I love that it lines the crank up with the rear drive. Right, because you've got companies like Moto Guzzi who say, we're just going to do transverse twin air-cooled motors and that lines up with the drive shaft, and we're going to do that until the end of time, and nobody can stop us. Right, except that's not perfect, though, because the crank still has to get geared over to one side of the bike to run it backwards. This en- yeah. this engine configuration went, no, like it can just all go straight we're we're going to have the most minimal loss like the most minimal mechanical loss of power through a drive shaft in history right and in that and then in that scenario and that's really the only strength it has. well that was a very elegant solution and i i imagine if it was really worked on and refined it would have been a killer. Yeah, if we were on the fourth generation of this engine right now, by now it would be so bloody brilliant. Yeah, we'd all be like, why would anyone do anything different? Right. Right. Now, here's the interesting thing. They did that with the K100. And the K100 had its own issues. And then they shrunk it down into the K75. So it's the budget version of this half-baked idea. Not only is it the budget version, at the time, this was the cheapest bike that BMW offered. So it's a completely novel engine design, and it's their cheapest bike. This would be like if Honda took their 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 nr oval piston design and put it into the cbr 300r 
Yeah. <laughs> make this single <laughs> cylinder, like five or six pistons, six valve, like, or we're going to make eight, an eight valve eight single valve oval. Double yeah. piston ride. <laughs> <laughs> it would be fraught with so many problems for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> now, even better is that they wanted to essentially keep the same um, horsepower per cc and even bump it up a little bit. So the way they designed the K75 is they took the K100 kept the exact same dimensions and just removed a cylinder and bumped up the compression ratio. Per cylinder, no parts were changed whatsoever. Oh, really? They're right. interchangeable parts? Yes. Oh, okay. Now I understand a little bit more. I mean, normally when they spec down an engine like this, there there are more parts changed than you would think. There's slight bore and stroke, you know, dimension changes. Things are lightened. Things are heavied. Things are slight timing changes. You know, all these little things to compensate. But you're saying they really did just whack off one cylinder? Yes. And then they upped the compression ratio. And this wasn't a super solid motor to begin with. Well, wait, to up the compression ratio, they must uh, they're either changing the head design or they're making it longer strokes so it compresses into smaller space. They're doing something there. Uh what was the Is it just the, oh. the is it, do they just change out the pistons? For higher compression pistons, they got a higher dome on the top of them. That'd be the easiest way. No, to yeah, do I it. think they shortened the domes on the top of them. Well, no, to raise the compression, you would raise Shrink. the domes. The domes on. No, because you got to put the same amount of air into a smaller space. So you would lower. The compression chamber well it, it, on the head i'm saying if you do it with the piss so yes okay okay yeah yeah they're gonna lower the dome yeah yeah well okay yeah I'm, they either lowered the head or they made the dome like the, the the pistons more domed on the top but anyway they got the compression they're although then that's pulling in a lower volume of air i get anyway it doesn't matter they made but it minimal was the same changes. Born it was it was a lazy thing. Is the point? They didn't they didn't think about well. Is this really an ideal engine setup to work at this kind of RPM? Is this right. really? You know, they just thought well, we gotta we're gonna make one less piston, which from a manufacturing cost point is no. way cheaper okay. and way Sorry. more cost saving than you would think. So you got me thinking I was retarded but yes now i'm looking it up and they did redesign the the top end and shrunk the compression chamber okay to right. increase the compression yes right. so they increased they increased it from 10.2 to 11 to 1 which you know for an air-cooled inline a, three is pretty good that's approaching needing mid-grade fuel yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I'd say at, a, at that compression, you should put at least mid grade in your bike. Yeah, especially if it's gonna if you're gonna run on a hot day and be in traffic. Sure. Yeah, but they didn't change anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes the same so, rings. It, say, it takes the same everything. Gotcha. So, turned out in the first few years, there were a lot of problems with this bike, especially since. The cylinder heads were all on the left side of the bike. Right. Because on a BMW, the crankshaft will go. Or the the final drive, yeah. The drive shaft will go on the right side of the bike. Yeah. It will. It's Vil! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... All of the cylinder heads were on the left hand on the left side of the bike, which, if you put the bike on the kickstand, means that all of the cylinder heads are facing down. So this is the classic problem that old gold wings have that I'm familiar with: is you constantly have oil seeping past the rings, which isn't a huge problem if you're Honda. And you can do this right. But if it's the early 80s, mid 80s, you haven't had a huge amount of experience with this shit, you're going to end up burning a lot of oil and having a lot of unburnt gas. And you're going to be a pollution machine. And beyond that, you're going to foul up a lot of exhaust valves. And spark plugs. And spark plugs, yeah. Yeah. So it turned out these bikes weren't all that reliable. Now, this would be okay because, you know, you can have a bike that's temperamental, especially in the mid to late 80s. That's kind of an okay thing at that time. You know, that's still in that's still in the era of horror movies where people try to escape a serial killer and they get into their car and it just won't start and that's totally believable yeah like I should, that's I in that it, era when, when i say like you know there's inherent problems in this design it's not i i believe that if it's 1980 whatever and you buy one of these things from new and you take great care of it you could easily have a happy life with one of these things But in the context of today and how these bikes hold up, when there's when we're talking about how I was just able to take. Can you just put the bottle cap on the floor? Yeah. And not touch it again. (laughs) So in the context of like I just I have a 78 Goldwing that I'm able to take these multi thousand mile trips on with almost zero problems. I mean, I know I just told a half hour story about how I had this like big issue with the simplest problem ever but in future episodes of the next few weeks we'll talk about much more amazing things this bike has done completely trouble free and actually outperforming much newer bikes you know that's just sort of the magic of honda right and even vintage honda that these things were made so exceptionally well when you have these things from the same era that were made so much better than they had to be made the k75 
just doesn't hold up. Yeah, it's it's sort of like it's one of those things that people think is cool, but didn't realize like kind of what the atmosphere was at the time. It's it's sort of like people on Tumblr rediscovering spirographs. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, isn't this cool? No. At least go <laughs> for the K100, which is more like the nightlight, you know? Yeah. It's not that much greater, but it's, it, let's be honest, it's better, right? It's easier to keep those little plastic light up pieces than it is <laughs> keep all the little like i bought my kids a spirograph a couple years ago for christmas and it was cool for like 20 minutes the night the night light is like um what was it called the light bright that's it the light bright not night light well it is a night light but the light bright still in use right yeah so there we go yeah well there were also early drive shafts disintegrating yeah but it was also but okay here's the capstone on the whole thing why this is the worst bike in the world if you are an enterprising person or if you know about a lot about bikes you could think well i can argue for why this is a cool design because in a still picture this bike looks cool in a quirky way like it has some charm it does have a lot of charm. But the problem is that the really, really big problem. <laughs> Sorry. It's going to stay in. I'm not editing this. All right. The really big problem is that as much charm as the bike has aesthetically, BMW killed it. They didn't persist. They didn't refine it. They didn't swap the motor yeah. over to the other side they didn't put better piston rings in it they didn't do anything to keep it going because i don't think engineering wise that this is a bad motor or a bad design for a motorcycle but they didn't even try so now it's just a quirky little machine it's not it's not elegant it's not efficient. It has not been approved by any modern engineer. It's just a cast off at this point. And it's a cast off of a motor that was downgraded. Yeah, if if you have one, you, you like people ask you about it, you get to go, it's an inline flat. And then the conversation falls flat after that because it doesn't do anything else cool. Well, yeah, because, well, first of all, 98% of people will just give you a blank stare. But yeah. <laughs> I, uh, okay. But even at the bike meetup, it's like, well, do these make a lot of power? Well, well, well it's no. like what happened tonight. <laughs> you know, I show, we, we went to the liquor store and got a bunch of beer and uh well oh i guess this is spoilers no well, we gotta we gotta hold off okay Let, let's just okay. move on to the let's move on to best bike okay let's do it we 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 are really dragging this out okay yes. hey people haven't heard for a while they're gonna be in the mood for a two and a half hour episode 
This is true, but I only grabbed two beers, so I'm well, going to grab some more. Okay. I'll just move into the next one. Keep you just going. keep the show going. I'll keep it going. Okay, so. And the best bike in the world this week is. The 2014 till present. I mean, they probably haven't actually manufactured any for a few years. Moto Guzzi El Dorado. What? No. <laughs> yes. So what? bring up a picture for us to look at, Swigs. And, you know, you at home, bring up a picture of yourself. I reckon this is the best. So, okay, we, we should have been this week hanging out at the AIM Expo. But, of course, all the things that have happened this year happened. And AIM Expo hasn't happened. It's also not going to happen in January, by the way. They've postponed it again. But anyway, so when we were at the AIM Expo, one of the highlights of the show was seeing the BMW R18 concept, which you thought was cool for some reason. The concept bike is super fucking cool. And the is rest it? of the world agrees with me. Uh, you may not be all about it, but the original R18 concept bike is the tits. Now, the rest of the world that agrees with me that it's the tits had their nuts fucking stomped on when BMW released what a production R18 would actually be. Dude, am I wrong? Am I wrong, dude? Dude. Dude, am I wrong? Well, I mean, I thought they both sucked, so I can't really help you here. <sighs> You're such a Debbie Downer on this. Okay, so... The, the BMW R18, if you're not familiar, just do yourself a favor. Google BMW R18 concept. And then look at what BMW didn't actually put in production, but almost put into production until the entire internet just shouted BMW out of the room with displeasure and rage. I... Oh my God, they were not, the public was not happy. Okay, so the BMW R18 concept was so amazing that people that we know who are predominantly scooterists were excited about the R18 concept, right? Do you remember sitting at the table at the, uh, the, the, the Cleveland Moto episode we did? And Dan and um, what's his face on the the BV five hundred? Like all the all the Cleveland Moto guys were so stoked about the R eighteen concept. These are guys that get their dicks hard over CT one seven fives, right? These <laughs> like God bless them, but the Cleveland Moto crew are not exactly with the times when it comes to high-performance machines or whatever, and they are very much into scooters and low-displacement, weird, old stuff, and that's great. But 
they were all about this, right? And the RIT concept was on the like on a Harley Davidson level of chrome and retro, right? Yes. Now I bring all of this up. I was really busy during that conversation getting my buzz on. Yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> so so I have to mention that bike to say that quietly this whole time there has been a bike that delivers I'm going to say 80% of what the R18 concept promised. Now, we all know that when a concept bike comes, you know, to production, it's going to be heavily compromised. And in the and 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 in the BMW example, it was so heavily compromised when it came to what the public was going to get, everyone said no thanks. I believe that the Moto Guzzi Eldorado, which is the highest trim level of the Moto Guzzi California, is the closest any company has come to delivering that kind of motorcycle. It's in the same displacement range at 1400. It's a it's as about as close an engine setup as you can get without being a flat twin. It's a horizontal V-twin, as all Moto Guzzi's are. It's shaft drive, just like the BMW was. It's probably very close to the same horsepower and torque numbers that the BMW was going to be. At 100 horsepower and I think 80 foot-pounds of torque? 70, 80? It has to be more than that. Yeah, okay. But, I mean... No, it has to be way more than that. It might be 90. It's not 100. No, it's got to be like 90 foot-pounds of torque and like 110 horsepower. Uh, I think it's just about at 100, but but it's got, it's got like 80-something foot-pounds of torque that comes in really fast. Yeah. And then stays with you for a lot of the power band. That's the whole Gootsy thing. Yeah, the Gootsy thing is that it comes in at like 2,000 It's going to top out at 120 miles per hour, but you've got full chooch all the way to that, right? Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's the most satisfying 100 horsepower you've ever felt. Yeah. The, 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 the Gootsy promise is not high horsepower or high torque. It's near full torque from the friction zone. It's the widest power band. It's so great. Yeah. So which I think is amazing. It's it's the most fun. But if you're looking at a modern bike like built today with that 1950s kind of styling, I think this does a better job than Harley Davidson. Oh, yeah. Well, it does because it's completely legit. Right. I mean, not to mention that Moto Guzzi has made an Eldorado since like the 60s or 50s or whatever it was. But this is a model that has legit heritage to it. And so it's not just that it visually and performance wise delivers what really makes this best bike in the world this week is the 
insane value. Okay. Moto Guzzi basically sells these things at a loss so they can sell V7s. Yes. This thing is something like sixteen or seventeen thousand dollars MSRP, and I have not witnessed or seen record of anyone paying more than thirteen thousand dollars for one. I cannot find a sale on Cycle Trader or eBay or anything above that ever. They frequently sell with like less than a thousand miles for like ten, eleven thousand dollars for base for brand for a brand new bike with full for for with more horsepower, faster than a Harley Davidson, faster light to light, stop sign to stop sign than a Harley Davidson, with better 1950s looks than a Harley Davidson, with absolute legit heritage like a harley davidson with white roll tires with all the chrome with everything you're just not gonna do better in value you get abs you get traction control you get luggage you get all the things i you know uh, if you're looking for a big tour these days, I, yeah, I mean, of course, you're, yes, there are better bikes. Yes, a Goldwing is better. But, I mean, if you're not doing thousands of miles at a time, if I you're just say, doing yeah. 400 miles at a time, I I would say unless you're doing a world tour where it's not acceptable for the factory to tell you that to go fuck yourself through august then (laughs) it's okay i say this is like the coolest bike from the blue collar neighborhood all the way up through the upper middle class and here's my reasoning right all your buddies in your blue collar neighborhood have basically signed their life away for the next 38 years on their harley davidson electroglide right and you're in it for a third of the cost on this bike yes and you're going to be a little bit faster than them plus the only plus they can't even give you shit on the heritage because your brand your make is has all the heritage and is older exactly and then there you go and then through through your middle class neighborhoods and upper middle class well it's way easier to pull the trigger because your wife is going to be less pissed and then it's got that little extra quirk to it you know what i mean it's got it's and, and then once you get into that middle class neighborhood your neighbors don't even know what's what weirdly in the blue class in the blue collar neighborhood your neighbors know a little bit more about what bike is what and once you move into the the area where all your neighbors are making a hundred grand a year, th- they don't even know they're they're on a well, different planet. They just know that yours looks a little bit different and quirkier than the other neighbor, right? Right. But there, there's another element even in there, like even of all the guys who knows who know bikes, even then, 
if they're not Moto Guzzi guys, they show up and they look at it and they think, what the fuck is that? Yeah. Like, it, it's, this is, this is another tier down the rabbit hole of obscure, ridiculous motorcycles. Because even within Piaggio, I want to say that Moto Guzzi, even with all the sales of V7s, it's still like maybe 7% of their brand. Yeah, it's not a lot. It's, yeah. Like, it, like, so... Well, this is, yeah. Okay. So, okay. So when I took the Norge down to Austin, Dakota, right, for MotoGP, was there a single person who came across our campsite on the front row of the campsite, right in front of the gates to get into the track, who came by and said, Oh, that's a Norge? There were people that were for, that were familiar with Moto Guzzi, but no, I don't think anyone <laughs> actually knew what the bike itself was. Was there a single person at twenty feet who could recognize the model of bike? No, no. I mean, people were thrown for a loop <laughs> by all of our bikes that year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a mystery to everybody. Well, it was weird because they came for the CP750 parked at our campsite, and they stayed for they stayed for the other weirdness that we had on <laughs> on show. Yeah, <laughs> we did have a proper freak show yeah. that year. <laughs> it was great. We, that's what we do. Yeah. So, <laughs> and speaking of that, you know, another reason that I put this as best bike in the world this week is as a uh, and a new addition to the family. Um, our father has purchased a not an Eldorado but a regular Moto Guzzi California, which is highly similar. It's essentially just the same bike with less chrome parts, but. You know, he didn't want the Eldorado. He actually just wanted the California. And uh, he's wanted one for years now, at least three or four years, to my knowledge. Yeah, it was but the he, first year he went to, to GP. He, But he like all of us this year, Dad has done a one-in, one-out. And he got rid of the Harley. And, he's, and he's, he flew to Florida to test ride a a Gucci California in the red and cream paint scheme because that's just what spoke to him, you know. And uh, and he bought it and it's going to be here in like a week or so. Well, I guess it's being held up in shipping or whatever. But anyway, he test rode it. He loves it. It's his dream bike essentially, and not because it's super high price. It's just the thing that speaks to him, you know. Yeah, he didn't ride this as a child. He was never a big Moto Guzzi. In fact, I don't think Dad has ever owned a Moto Guzzi. No. It's always kind of... He's always, he's always been, known of them, He's obviously. always been curious. He's always It's always been there in the periphery. But well, he, he's, he's always loved the idea of the Moto Guzzi California. But on the, the really, really big, stupid road trip we took this summer, which we'll do a whole nother episode on because it's really worth it. Um, he rode your Norge for a couple hundred miles 
Yeah. And got it to 110 miles an hour. Well, he would have gotten more. <laughs> I've never seen Dad cut loose on a bike like that before. <laughs> wow. I, he just let it rip and just went from the back of the line to the front. And and he didn't know that there was a T-junction coming in the road. I think Dad would have taken it to its top speed. He would just kept just kept it open. But... Um, he he got a big taste of that Moto Guzzi torque, and he liked it. And there was just no stopping him. Uh, from the moment we got back from that trip, he was like, "Peter, you're you're good at finding bikes. Like, let's 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 get one of these." And within five days, I think he found the bike. He spent one week of negotiations on the phone with the uh, the dealership. Then he flew out there to test ride it. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, he was that's what he wanted to do. So, um, so you know, that's our personal involvement with this bike and this model. But I really do believe that this is the bike that just hasn't had enough fanfare. If you thought you liked the R18 concept, like so many people did last year, take a look at the Guzzi California. I think you're going to see a lot of what you liked about that bike in this bike. Yeah. And, and, and it's not a concept. It's something you can just buy for stupid low money for what it is. I agree. This is what you actually wanted. Yeah. I would rather have this than the R18. I mean, even the R18 concept, as cool as it is, is a bike that would be a nightmare to live with. I mean, it's ultra cool, but it's clearly not something you could actually live with. So let's move on. Yeah, here we go. Here's a sound you haven't heard for a while. Actually, can we put a break in this? Because I really have to pee. Oh, my God. Okay. And just like that, we're back. So, okay. This next segment here, we're going to do a little bit of just catching you guys up on what we've been doing. Part of why there's been a hiatus. I mean, I know I kind of called a hiatus on the show because there was just... Honestly, because there was just so much going on in my life at once. There just wasn't room for this show anymore for a while and it was a little bit of a mid podcast breakdown well well i was definitely having an existential breakdown which i'm prone to have every few years for whatever reason look i've quit bands for this same sort of thing i have we're, we're all bands. entitled to it I, but also i mean honestly like i'm well you and i were just talking about this i'm really really fucking good at what i do but the the challenges presented to me in my job were huge during this whole thing. I am a restaurant manager. And, you know. Enough said. Yeah. But on top of that, whilst all these other restaurants are closing, my restaurant has gone through about a 40% business increase. Which is more than most people could just handle an increase in in their you know in general right like how do you, you know, how do you how do you deal with that kind of growth it's 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 been a fucking roller coaster, um, 
but uh, but you know it's not like there weren't like all the other challenges that face everyone anyway just plus the fucking depression of all this shit and and like what does it mean and whatever and how fucking insane all this media that bombards us is and i also kind of needed to take like a 90 day break from internet media which i didn't do completely but i mostly did and it was really good for me and i recommend if you can you should do it this is a great year to do that but apart from that things life has been going on so we we were desperate for a big motorcycle summer event right man we we had our hearts set on going to um mid ohio well well first we couldn't go to MotoGP. and then our backup plan was sturgis well it, we had like six backup plans because we thought well if we can't go to MotoGP, maybe we'll ride out to california and we'll visit um, the misfits and we'll visit um, uh, creative writing and some other people that we know out there you know and then things got weirder and we're like oh okay well you know we'll go to mid-ohio surely that'll happen and that didn't you know and like just we kept saying okay well then we'll do this well then we'll do this and everything was just not happening and then we thought, okay, well, Sturgis is going to happen. So let's go to Sturgis. And we thought, okay, what we'll do is we'll go to Sturgis. We'll, we'll go to the campgrounds. And, you know, we'll have our campground with kind of borders on it. We'll wear masks. We'll wear fucking gas masks if we have to. And we'll go to the museum. We won't do any of the shit on Main Street. But we're not going to we'll, go to the concerts or anything. Well, we were thinking we would go to the concerts <laughs> at the campgrounds, but sort of like in that big open air campground atmosphere. Yeah. We weren't like going to go to the concerts at the bars, right? Right. We thought we were going to, well, let's invent a responsible way to go to Sturgis, right? But then it got politicized to a degree where it was not possible to do anything at Sturgis in any responsible way. Right. Well, well, I still believe there's a way we could have gone and been safe and responsible, but I wasn't interested in going to an event that was going to put me in the middle of someone's ideological war. Right. I wanted to go somewhere to do motorcycle stuff and relax. And if it involved these precautions on the side, I was fine with that. But once it got that politicized, where it was like no one was even going to care how many precautions I took to make it safe, I was like, I'm out. And you know, I really wanted to go. And I just, I, you know, yeah, I, you badgered me a lot. Well, <laughs> to go to Sturgis. Well, you were very cold on the idea of Sturgis in general. And I was like, but we've never done it. And it's the only thing happening. And well, it's I also, like that, I also didn't have a job. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you, you're in the middle of changing jobs. We haven't told people about that. Yeah. But, you know, I think we should go next year because because it's something we haven't done. Right. Yeah. And as much as it's not our scene, I mean, I've gone to Sturgis before, but I've gone to Sturgis out of season. And it's no great. scene is my scene. Well, right. That's going to Sturgis out of <laughs> yeah. season, right? No scene. Yeah. It's the ultimate no scene because it's a ghost town. There's these like four story bars with no one in them, you know, and and whatever. But there but it really is great writing around there. And it is a beautiful mm-hmm. area. There's a reason people go. So anyway. So we had to create our own anti Sturgis. Basically. Yeah. So we will give people the basic outline of what we did, but what we actually did on this ride needs to be its own episode because it was fucking epic and a half. It was awesome. Definitely one of the best trips we've ever done. It's it's up there with any MotoGP trip we've ever done or no, anything well, like that. Well, in terms of just the riding itself, this is the best motorcycle trip I've ever taken. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we're blessed with just being in Colorado and being able to ride so much of the mountain stuff and everything we can do. But this was a whole area of the state we'd never even been to. So we took, oh, I can't even remember the road, 187, 185. Well, let's save all this for... Okay. Wait. Well, yeah, but we should say basically you, me, dad, and my buddy Cam and his girlfriend... We rode 1,500 miles in a circle from here down to, uh, what was the town? Oh, it's where, oh, it's where the, the El Rancho Hotel <laughs> was. In, it was where Route 66 meets up with... We, we left from Denver to nowhere to Moab back to Denver. Uh, okay. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> Through a lot of Indian territory, we yeah we went a from lot of yeah we went from Denver to somewhere in New Mexico, like uh, into Arizona. Oh no, we we were in Arizona for like two hours. Uh I think more like two hundred miles because we went through Painted Desert and all of that. Maybe. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> it was hot. But, <laughs> As hot as balls. It was, it was the last week in August, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was. It was great though. Anyway, uh, the <laughs> the Goldwing was a fucking hero through that ride. But anyway, so so we've been up to some epic rides that we're gonna we're gonna fill you guys in on in later episodes. Well, an epic ride. Let's. Well, I've done some other epic rides, but anyway, anyway, so. That's happened, but more to the point, and let's cut to the chase. We have done some buying and selling of bikes. So we already said that dad sold the Harley Davidson. A little background on that. I don't know if we ever told people about this, but dad bought the Harley from a friend of his who owed some money on it. And the bank was kind of calling on some debts. And so dad bought this bike basically at half price from his buddy to help him out with that because he was going to just lose the bike to the bank. So dad uh, 
was like, okay, I'm going to take this 1500 mile road trip with, you know, Pete and Swiggs. And then his buddy was like, hey, I'd like to buy the bike back, which dad always agreed that his buddy could buy it back for the same price. So that has motivated dad to, you know, swap out the Harley for the Gootsy, which great for him because, you know, he he did a couple big rides. With which is Harley also and- why we never did a ride down to Austin with the with the harley no we no, it we should have and could have done rides on down no, we should, with the harley we but we never did because it just logically never made sense no we should have and we could have but dad never wanted to take the harley down because he didn't want to put thousands of miles on it in order to be able to sell it back to dan in good condition that doesn't make any sense, though, because it's that kind of bike. No, the no. reason is, is that dad didn't want to ride it to Austin and back, and he didn't trust us not to crash it. Well, after the Vulcan incidents. Yeah, we crashed his Vulcan <laughs> each. <laughs> that, is, that is true. <laughs> so. So, OK, now. <laughs> Now, you have unloaded a bike. You have finally sold the W650. I have finally let go of something. Well, actually, let's back up a little bit more. So when we started this podcast, we had this idea that every year we were only going to renew the insurance on one bike a year. We were going to own two bikes and we were going to swap out a bike every year. Yes. Each, right? That was the promise we made. Now, with my divorce and other things and whatever, it was difficult for me to build up to that two-bike number for a while. And then we also learned that I was a motorcycle hoarder. Right. <laughs> and you had trouble letting go of them. But we're actually starting to really make good on this cycle. So... You, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm at net zero right now. Well, that's not <laughs> entirely true. You're in the right direction. Okay, so ho- hold on. Oh, so, <laughs> so, okay, so your first bike ever was the was the CB1000. Yeah, and you sold that no problem to get the W650. Yep, which. We rode around a bunch. We did iron butt rides on it. We did all kinds of shit. We did two iron butt rides on it. Right. It's a weird bike for that kind of thing, but we kind of did everything we needed to do with it. And it has been just sitting around, literally doing nothing for like a year and a half. Uh, 12 months, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. About. So you finally sold that to dad, who is selling it to someone else. But whatever, it's out of the picture. I'm getting the cash. I don't care. Right. <laughs> I know now, it's going to somebody who is semi-responsible. Now, you, that's all I care about. I understand you not selling the Aprilia Futura because you crashed it. But also... That's kind of your bike. That is so your little specific space in motorcycles. It is 
my fetish. Right, like kind it of like is, I've been developing this <laughs> Goldwing fetish. It, it's not a fetish that I have. It's my fetish, right? <laughs> which is which is weird Italian shit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> weird detuned angular Italian Italian shit. <laughs> <laughs> which. Oh, trust me in a minute. We're going to get deeper into. <laughs> oh, trust me. <laughs> Scooter Dan knows what I'm about to get to. So, okay. So, here's what's happening. At the end of this epic 50, I really only mentioned the fact that we took this 1,500-mile trip through the Southwest because you rode the Norge all through it. And I feel like through that ride, you really made your peace with letting it go. I did. Because we love the Norge. And, and, and as much as anyone, I was very hesitant when you rode the Norge. I was, I was not ready to just give my heart to it. Well, I told you a year ago, I was over. thinking about selling the Norge. And you were just, you said, no, you can't sell the Norge. Or... After about a, a after a couple months, you said, "Well, if you're gonna sell the Norge, it needs to stay in the family." And I then, considered buying it. <laughs> right, I thought maybe we could sell it to Doctor Mike. Maybe Ditch will take it. I, you know, like because it's because it's a reliable bike. There I were there were the multiple way. there were multiple stages of grief. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I won't deny that. I won't deny that. But I came to that place of peace as well, where I thought, you know what? It's it's a great bike. There's nothing wrong with it. It's I love the way it makes power. It's such a great road trip bike. It's you know, it but I, I did realize, like, somewhere in the middle of Arizona or Utah, I was like, yeah, we've done everything with it we're going to do. We have siphoned gas into it. We have siphoned gas out of it. <laughs> we, like, we've, you know, like, we've, it is, it is stranded us. It has saved us. It is, we've done everything with this bike. We have ridden it short distance, long distance. We've had it in the twisties. We've had it across Kansas and it's still kicking strong, but it's time to let someone else enjoy it because there's just too many bikes, right? Yeah. So, pro so next spring, so. You you have already bought another bike, but that's fine because because what's going to happen is the Norge is going up for sale next spring, and the Futura is getting it, uh, body repaired and resprayed, and it's going to be as good as new because it's still mechanically perfect, but it's going to get a cool like Italian flag paint job or whatever. Well. I still need to pull the trigger on what I'm going to do with it, but I think that's what you should do. The Futura is it's staying. It's staying. at least another year. Uh, for sure. Right. There's we haven't I done everything with it yet. We've done 
you've done some mountain riding and we've done one big road trip with it. We we haven't exhausted it yet. Yeah, we have. I, the fe- There's something... There's... I think the future is going to stick around a lot longer than the Norwich did. But we'll see. We'll see. I mean, you know, the same argument can be made with the Goldwing. I mean, can it? I I mean, the Goldwing is nice, but there there are other Goldwings out there. It's true. I mean, it's a ticking time bomb, but it's been so good so far. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so... Anyway, so, okay, you got rid of the W650, and you're gonna sell the Norge. I sold the Superhawk. Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> I... Um, and in the next segment, we'll talk more about that. But I sold the Superhawk, so I went down to just the Goldwing. Now, we are both another bike up. Well, in fairness, you were down a bike for about 12 hours. Well, okay. <laughs> well, 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 that's not entirely true. That is not entirely true. Uh, I was down the Superhawk for almost all of this year because it was stuck in the shop which is State Farm's oh. fault. Oh, and yeah. State Farm can go suck a fucking fuck. And I don't, I'm not afraid to fucking say it. State Farm is the worst insurance company on the face of the planet, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, my God. Why did it take... What did it take? Eight months to replace the ignition on it? The ignition barrel? Uh, it was at least six months. I think it was close to eight. Well, it happened in uh, the last week of April. Uh, yeah, but that's is when I was putting my sprinkler system in. So five, six months. I got it. Ba- I got it back f- four weeks ago. Yeah, so five or six months, which is still like five months too long. Yeah. Of me making phone calls every week of that as well. Oh my gosh. I just leave State Farm if, if you're with them. That's what I'm doing. I, 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 all my vehicles have run out on my insurance policies and I'm changing my house to something different as well. Because it's inexcusable. It's it's just absolutely inexcusable. So anyway. Yes, for a six-piece Steel just new parts. locks, just just new ignition barrel and new locks over the thing because someone tried to steal it when it was at your place. Yeah, which I, we talked about in the show. Before. That's like twenty dollars of parts on a Honda motorcycle. Yeah, it, it's dumb. Anyway, so I I sold the Superhawk. So here's what's going to happen now. Well, should say what has happened. Well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to press this pause button for a second and which I'm going to pee. Then I'm going to unpause it. And then I'm going to come back, hit the rev limiter button. And then we're going to reveal the stupid shit that we actually bought. <laughs> All right. We'll get the, the PBRs out. <laughs> All 
So this segment is called the stupid shit that we bought. Our new bikes, the new additions to the family. So Swiggy, your fetish has been weird, angular Italian shit. You really didn't disappoint. What did you buy? So I didn't even buy directly. Hold on. Let me open this gas station tiramisu in a can, because right, isn't that appropriate? Same. Yeah, that, that's a good call. <laughs> <laughs> so, I bought a genuine scooter, Stella. Okay, so explain to people who don't know what that is, what that is. So, the genuine scooter company, Stella, is essentially a PX150, or a, let me start over. Yeah, you're doing a terrible job. It is a Piaggio Vespa PX150. 95% You need to put this parts. into plain language for people. Okay. You do it for. Okay. You so Swiggy bought a classic Vespa is what you need to know. Just close your eyes and imagine an old Vespa scooter. That's what Swiggy bought. Now, it's weirder than that though, because you know that Swiggy can't just do this normally. Right. So Piaggio, which is the company that owns Vespa and owns Moto Guzzi and Aprilia, all his favorite brands. <laughs> right. Um, uh, sold. Stop. Help s- me. S- <laughs> the, the, had a, a company in India making uh, scooters for them. Uh, I might even still be making scooters for them, but it's called LML. And I think it's actually. I'm the, sure they're still making them. I for think Mercedes. it's. I think it's the company that actually makes uh, Royal Enfield still to this day and made Royal Enfields under license. At least made Royal Enfields under license. I'm pretty sure. Possibly. Anyway, anyway they made actual Vespas, and they made Vespas under a different name that were imported into the U.S. under years when there were no Vespas coming into the U.S. or no classic Vespas coming to the US. So the genuine scooter company who sells shit like the buddy scooters and whatever basically brought in a a scooter made basically under license by Vespa and they just changed the name on it. A two-stroke 150 scooter that is in every way a Vespa like legally and technically except it just says Stella on it instead of Vespa and it's uh it's a a very jolly orange color I love it it's It's great great. no it's wonderful (laughs) it's wonderful it it makes everybody smile it really does it does (laughs) until you pass them at 40 miles an hour and then their dick shrink well we'll get to that in a moment (laughs) so 
Is it is this the moment now where I reveal what I bought? What six days later? I think it was like <laughs> nine, or it may have even been two weeks. But yeah, it was. Well, so I had been thinking very seriously about buying this bike as well, right? We had both been dead, not dead set, but strongly considering these bikes before we bought them. Within the family, I'm considering myself the trendsetter here. I predict within a month, dad will have bought a Lambretta. Okay, so... I bought a Vespa, an actual Vespa Vespa, <laughs> PX150. Oh, look at you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so the joke is, is that uh, mine's an actual Vespa scooter, while Swiggy has the Indian, or as I call it, non-Vespa, <laughs> if you get the pun. So, so basically, the tragic news that we have to convey to all of you is that whilst we still own motorcycles, we've also become scooter fags. I don't know if this is a term embraced in the scooter community, (laughs) but I feel like it's appropriate to say because it takes a lot of balls to ride these things around. Right. It does. But once you do that, these are amazing vehicles. So I've been commuting to work on this thing for the last week. I, I guess this is our, our scooter life ride report here. What, what, what have we learned from riding these things around for the last couple weeks? So uh, you got yours first. So give, give us a start. What, what, is, what is it to be a scooterist when you first jump in? at this level so i would say that owning a scooter and just being out directly in traffic is sort of the middle between owning a moped and a motorcycle in terms of just getting into traffic it's not the most harrowing experience of your life but it's also not nothing. Well, I've got to add something there. If you're an experienced motorcyclist, it won't be the most harrowing thing of your life because you'll be able to to handle the scooter. If this is your starting point, it might be kind of terrifying getting into traffic. Right. Which is also hilarious when you consider the context of my bike purchase which was somebody who owned a ducati bought this bike for their wife to be able to ride with them which is really not yeah i don't know what he was thinking (laughs) we'll we'll, we'll we'll get more into that guy when we get to the next segment on the on the show here yeah but yeah the twist select scooter is like Actually, you're right. When you say twist select there, we should back up and describe more of what these are, because a lot of our listeners have just heard that we bought scooters and then turned the show off. Let's give a little bit more detail on how these are more legit vehicles than people think. Yeah. Okay. So 
These are 150 cc scooters, two stroke, two stroke. So it's more like 300 power. Yeah. So two stroke oil and well, they are, but also okay, like 70s two stroke power. Okay, but just keep going. But they're they're oil injected and they're not CVT. They're manual. Four speed manual. Yeah, they're four speed manual. Twist select. Okay, you have to explain twist select now. So twist select is okay, so everyone who's listening to this podcast should know that on a regular motorcycle you've got your front right brake and your throttle on the on the right hand side you've got your clutch on the left side and you've got your gear select on your left foot and you've got your rear brake on the right foot on a twist select scooter what you've got is your front brake on your right hand and you've got your throttle on your left hand on the grip as well. On your right foot, you have a brake that you definitely do not have your foot resting on. Well, it's like, okay, okay. Here's the best way to explain it. On a scooter like this, everything is exactly the same except for two things. Instead of your brake pedal like you have on your motorcycle, you have a brake pedal on your right foot just like you have a brake pedal in your car. Yes. That's a better explanation. And then instead of your gear selector on your left foot, you pull in your clutch and not just the hand grip, but the entire stem the whole assembly the whole assembly of the left hand side grip twists like it would on the gear change for a mountain bike except there's a clutch in it to change your gears no not even mountain bikes are that dumb well (sighs) yeah but you're right on your mount on like your mountain bike you know a lot of you know you've all seen mountain bikes where you 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 twist that thing on the on the side of your uh of your of your hand grip that changes the gears. Oh, yeah, if you have the inner ring, right? On as the gear, it's selector. like that, but you have a clutch as well. So you pull in your clutch and then you twist the whole thing like you do on your mountain bike to change gears. Right. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful system. It's beautiful, but I would argue that no, no, there is no person who has zero legal miles on their license. That should ride one of these. Oh, yes. Because it's ridiculous. Well, so here's the mind fuck that happens, right? Because on a motorcycle, the all everything every all four of your limbs have a job to do, but only your left only your right hand has two jobs to do, which is braking and throttle. On the twist select scooter. Both your hands have two jobs to do. And then often, 
you have two hands that for a very short period of time have four jobs to do. Exactly. So it's actually very technical to ride one of these things because you, at many moments, you are twisting both hands and operating your fingers in a very precise way. So it's extremely engaging and technical to ride one of these. I... You know, there's a lot of questions we have discovered that people ask you, like, how fast does it go? How old is it? Is it classic? Uh, Do you need a license? Can it go on the highway? And my blanket answer has become more than you can handle, bro. Well, because people call it a moped and whatever, and I've already got into the it's not a fucking moped kind of thing, right? And what I explain to people is I go, look, all I can tell you is you would not be able to drive it across the parking lot. Yeah. Like, to most people. I'm just like, you wouldn't be able to ride it. Just plain and simple. Well, just even because this bike was made... The original blueprints and the tooling is from the 70s. Oh, well, I, I mean, would it's based on vehicles from the from the 40s. I would say that most if you if you just got the entire population of the planet to try and get on this and you explained how it worked and you gave them 10 minutes of instruction Nine out of ten people couldn't ride this bike a hundred yards just getting into first gear and pulling away. Well, you told me it took Dr. Mike ten minutes to get on it and pull away, and he's a very experienced motorcyclist. Well, it was like five minutes, but that was... Okay, well, five minutes is still a very long time for a very experienced and accomplished motorcyclist. Yeah. Mike's been riding for 18 years and has been on 1,000, 2,000-mile trips with us. I, If anyone's <laughs> experienced, Mike is experienced. He's on multiple bikes. Well, that was like, also including... He's rebuilt a fucking engine. Like <laughs> That was also including right. starting the bike and all the weird rules around getting the bike to go right but if if it still threw him for a loop for a few minutes i mean it's not it's just not a normal thing yeah it it is definitely not a not a normal thing in this day and age well yeah i mean these things are kickstart they're uh you know manual you know pull choke they're carbureted they're two-stroke they're twist select gear separate front and rear brake uh, it's it's every level of complexity that it could possibly have. <laughs> aside from the well, aside from the bullshit of a classic uh, Royal Enfield switching the controls on you across the bike, it is. Yeah, yeah it's every complexity. Well, it's, it's it's what it is is it's every legitimate complexity. Yes, legitimate, sure. Now, what has attracted me to this is that when you think about it, motor- everyone kind of, not everyone, but many people approach motorcycling with a sort of idealized version of motorcycling in their head. 
you know, this is the common thing where people want to go out and buy their dream bike as their first bike, right? Which we know is folly, but people continue to do it, right? This is why the 883 Iron Harley Davidson exists, right? It's a budget bike dressed up to look like someone's dream bike, right? This is right. this is why a lot of bikes exist. And the truth is, is that like scooters pose a very interesting question, which is how much do you really like to ride? Is it all about horsepower? Is it all about an image? Or is it simply about riding? Is it simply about the engagements? And, you know, how much variety are you up for? Right? Yes. And you don't know pressure and thrill until you've overtaken Ford Escort on a 40 mile an hour road. Bringing (laughs) everything you can out of your eight and a half horsepower. (laughs) No. Well, I think I'm pushing an honest 10 horsepower on mine, but we'll get to that in a minute. Now, the the interesting thing is, is, well, the truth is that there is no perfect idealized way to ride motorcycles, right? Because you've got your big highway cruisers and you've got your adventure riding and you've got your dual sport and you've got your dirt riding and then you've got motocross and then you got farm bikes and you got scooters and you've got super sports and you've got hyper bikes like boosas and you've got budget bikes you've got budget sport bikes there's all these different avenues And I think most people that do genuinely just love riding, not just the pure aesthetic of it, will try more than one of these categories. You know, and I think after this scooter thing, I'm probably going to go for some dirt stuff. I'm really looking hard into the prospect of getting dirt bikes for me and my kids. And this is just another one of those stops along that journey. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll have a scooter for the rest of my life like this. Because I'll tell you, this scooter is way fucking fun. Uh, but, you know, for those that think like, oh, you've betrayed us. You've gone to scooters. And scooters are motorcycles. Like dirt bikes are motorcycles. Like adventure bikes are motorcycles. Like cruisers are motorcycles. It's a, It's just a very specific direction you know, or corner of this space that we've kind of decided to occupy right now. Yeah. And it turns out it's more fun in groups, but yeah, a lot of people are going to think about it in terms of, Oh, well, this is how we got girls to ride motorcycles. Like this is a trap. And instead it's no, this is actually, no, it was act. No, it. Let me let me start it. A lot of people will think like, "Oh, well, we tricked girls into riding motorcycles because we thought this was actually uh, a really accessible way to ride on two wheels." But in actual terms, this is really a very technical way to ride on two wheels. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is actually, it is so different because with everybody riding on 18 and 20 inch wheels, you have no idea how much balance assist having 28 20 inch wheels is working oh the gyroscopic effect yeah well you all know that feeling that you just let your clutch out and all of a sudden the bike just wants to stay up straight right you don't get that for free on a scooter it's a little bit more (laughs) like riding a bicycle yes so it's kind of sketchy it's it's you definitely have to have a little bit more wits about you in terms of like um your balance and where you're at and it's it makes deep leaned in corners like feel way different um but i i think the the biggest thing for me well also is oh. just slamming the brakes on with a dime of service area oh yeah <laughs> way less contact <laughs> yeah it it they're they're kind of sketchy but not not in a wholly unsafe way, but in a way that you do want to have more of your wits about you. But for those that think it's like sort of unmanly or whatever, I, I pose a couple things. First of all, you wouldn't think it. You're definitely not overpowered. You're definitely a little underpowered in the modern day. But let's put this in its time and place, right? If we put scooters in the time and place of the late 60s and early 70s, then they quite often had higher top speeds and better acceleration than a lot of cars, especially in Europe. You know, I don't I don't even care. Well, no, no, my, hold my, on. But, but, but it, 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 they hold, okay. they hold as reasonable vehicles today because even though they don't outperform cars anymore, up to about 45 or 50 miles an hour, the horsepower to weight ratio actually makes a lot of sense. If you think about your 5,000 pound family sedan car, or 6,000 pound, 180, 200 horsepower SUV, your 10 horsepower and 400 pound vehicle with you on it is the same horsepower to weight ratio. And you are going to be very competitive on acceleration and speed, or even in some cases outperform them if you're an experienced rider in town, you you just are right now out on the highway or the state road where well, you can't go on the interstate, but on your state roads where it's 55 or 60. Yeah. People are going to be blowing by you and it's going to be intimidating, but within town in terms of acceleration and speed, you are with traffic. You just need to be experienced enough on a two-stroke to stay in your power band and with your gear changes. But also, because it's a scooter, everyone assumes that you're 50cc, and you can just break traffic laws left and right, and nobody gives a flying fuck. Bicycle lane? That's your lane, bro. Sidewalks? Why not? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Stop signs in parking lots. 
don't apply to you. Well, I will say th- these all apply until you pass somebody. Well, okay, yeah, we have quickly discovered that people in almost anyone really don't don't like to be passed by scooters. It doesn't matter. Compact cars, SUVs, minivans. They're not cool with the whole situation. Old ladies are, like, offended. I mean, people... (laughs) People that you would not think as competitive drivers. I mean, seriously, women. Uh, I pass women, and they're like, oh, fuck no, not today, and have to whip back around me. <laughs> People that you do not think are competitive drivers take it as a personal attack. So you do have to be ready to do battle in traffic. I mean, no one's going to take you out. But know that if you pass somebody, if they get a cheap shot to pass you again, they will. Oh, yes, they will. Another element that you have to put into your. It's another element that you have to put into your. You know. Into your system of. Of riding. If you're being a responsible, safe rider. This is just another calculation you have to put in, which is if you attempt to overtake somebody, then you have to expect this bullshit retaliation in terms of navigating where you want to go. Now, I've got to give my commuting ride report here. Because for the whole last week, I've ridden this thing to work and back. And this has involved going to work at 7 in the morning. This has involved going to work at 9 in the morning. This has involved going to work at 11 in the afternoon. This has involved coming home at 4 in the afternoon. This has involved coming home at 8 in the evening past dark. And this has involved coming home at midnight. So... Pretty and this is and this also involves going through town, through rural back roads, and through suburban neighborhoods. So pretty much the entire gambit of all scooter riding ever. Right? So what have I learned? I've learned that scooters are kind of geared and tuned to do wide open throttle a little bit better than motorcycles are. You don't want to do it forever because it's still an air cooled two stroke, but for a couple miles at a time, you can hold these things wide open throttle. And it's not a couple seconds at a time, a couple miles at a time. Oh, okay. I have learned that 60 miles an hour on 10-inch tires is really about as fast as you really want to go. I could have told you that. (laughs) That is definitely true. There are performance mods that you can do to get these things to go faster than that, but the tire size is really the limit on the speed more than anything else. This is why there's really nothing bigger than a 200 two-stroke scooter. 
Yeah. So I've learned that people have the scooter riders themselves, as well as the people around you have very flexible ideas on what laws apply to you and what don't. The only thing people don't like is being passed. No one has a problem if I'm riding the scooter down a bicycle lane. No one has a problem if I sort of jump a sidewalk and just go into a gas station parking lot. No one has a problem. They they just get pissed when I pass them, right? And I end up and here's the other thing. I end up passing cars more frequently than in town than I pass them on my motorcycle. And the reason is a rather interesting one, which is that in 1960-something, when these scooters were mostly popular, you were competing against very low-horsepower cars, right? If it was the UK, right? You're, 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 you're a mod youth, and, and you're up against panda cars, right? Which is the modern version of being on a leader bike versus a police interceptor, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> just decrease the stakes on both sides, right? But uh, today, you're up against, you know, cars that could do 130 miles an hour and they weigh well, 6,000 pounds. No, you're up against people's attention spans and people's willingness to stretch the limits well uh, that's true as well but let's just look at simply the the horsepower and the mass involved right the cars are bigger and they're more powerful so in town the speeds are still fairly similar right you're you're still you're still looking at 30 and 35 and 25 and sometimes 40 in town and whatever and your scooter is still totally capable of dealing with that except you know when you're turning and you're merging and all that stuff you have to just be in the power band which means you can't really scrub off as much speed as other vehicles you kind of need to keep a little bit of a more of a flow going than the right. start and stop. You don't have the huge torque and the big acceleration from stop that the cars have around you. So you find yourself doing things of going, well, I'm going to go around this car because it's weirdly a little bit of a safer move for me to do. Or you think I'm... I should slow down for this 25, but I I just need to be competitive with traffic here because I know this other part's coming up and I know the town and whatever. And so you find yourself just sticking in the power band and you're constantly changing up gear and changing down gear and staying in that zone because you need because you've only got your 10 horsepower versus your 400 pounds of weight or whatever. And and you need to keep it tuned to stay competitive with your cars. And if you do that, you're cool. But I think that it is possible that scooters might, or old two-stroke scooters, might become irrelevant 
for traffic in a world where we move completely or predominantly to electric cars. For right now, it's fine if you're an experienced rider. It certainly makes it a very engaging experience and you do have to like fight for your rights and traffic and whatever. It's not insanely dangerous, but it's a thing and you need to be a little bit more aware than motorcyclists. But we're going to reach a point in 20 years where the government tells us we're going to pay you all a thousand dollars to fuck off. And, and just not will, drive. And we'll crush your scoot. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, as a in a world of nothing but electric vehicles that can just take off like rocket ships, I think these two-stroke scooters would just be outright dangerous. I think your modern like Vespa three hundred four strokes with CVTs might still be able to compete no, in that they're, world. They're not crazy. It's just they're still. You've never driven a Tesla. I have. They're crazy. Oh, no. You're talking about electric car. Oh, no. What I'm saying is... Would you it's, feel it's, comfortable riding your scooter in a world of only electric cars? If they were all driven by computer, then no problem whatsoever. No. Oh, well, we're 100 years from that, though. Uh, yeah. Anyway, my point is... Wait, were you saying that it was... I'm it's, saying that weirdly you have to pass more vehicles than you would on your motorcycle because you have to stay in that power band on your scooter. Yeah. And you have to make moves in traffic that people don't logically understand because of the nature of your vehicle. I will say. And they get mad I, about it. <laughs> I will say that I have made moves on the Stella that on the even on the w650 let alone on the norge or the futura were downright casual that seemed insanely aggressive on the stella yeah <laughs> that's true like, too i'm gonna go from 30 to a dead stop in three seconds <laughs> like, it's like, it's like well, watch out well that's another thing about it too is that it resets your whole expectation of what's normal and exciting on two wheels yeah all of a sudden 60 miles an hour is light speed and yeah 30 to zero is 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 insane it, it, it really does Again, it asks you that question. How much do you really just like the dynamic of operating a two-wheel inline vehicle in traffic? Right. Like, is it relative or is it only speed for you, right? Is it is it that you like riding motorcycles or is it that you like the way you look on a motorcycle or the way you think you look on a motorcycle? And... You know, when we say that people get angry about being passed, it's not every single person that you pass. Because in this new world of like super duper, let your freak flag fly, and, you know, eight different bathrooms for everything, and, you know, no body shaming and whatever. I feel like the people that were sort of okay with scooters are super accepting of scooters 
and the people that were never okay with scooters are just like super haters right (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) long gone are the days of the person that's just gonna let it happen there's people that are gonna get if you they're gonna give you a super wide berth and people they're gonna lay on the horn and try to pass you as fast as they fucking can And, and that's just, that's just the reality of it. And I will, going into it, I am, I'm okay on those terms. I know that that's what it is and that's what it's going to be. Oh my God. All my employees think I'm a fucking crazy person. They're like, why did you buy a moped? Like they've seen me show up to work on sport bikes and gold wings and, and all kinds of crazy shit over the years. And now I'm showing up on this scooter and they're like, what is this? Why? Why? They don't know what to think. Yeah. They they don't realize that this is the road to enlightenment. It's not necessarily the road. It's one stop on the way. Yeah. It's it there. There's a tempering element here. This is this is experiencing this is this is Mr. Miyagi trying to catch the fly with his chopsticks. Yeah. That's what this that's the exercise here. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the last thing I have to bring up about scooter life that I've noticed so far is it Am is Am I not going to get any more of a reaction out of you for bringing up a Karate Kid 2 reference. He caught the fly in the first Karate Kid. What are you talking about? What? Daniel no. catches the fly in the first Karate Kid. Absolutely not. I've watched it with my kids recently. Yes. No. I haven't watched Karate Kid 2 with my kids. And I, I, yes. No. Daniel son catches the fly like there's like three scenes of miyagi trying to catch the fucking fly and then daniel catches it and he's like oh beginner's luck like yeah mm, uh, wow okay i don't know yeah the, tell you what the listeners are gonna are gonna email in and tell you you're wrong <laughs> okay um well there we go okay fine. so uh, the big one of the biggest things I, I have noticed about scooter life, and this will apply to modern four-stroke scooters as well, and you are going to really agree with this. It is convenience multiplied. Yes, I don't know how to explain this, except that you just have to see it happen or live it. But the Vespa glove box is, let me put it this way. You can hold as much in a Vespa glove box as whatever you're putting on the passenger seat of your car. Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes more, it turns out. (laughs) And then you can get luggage racks as well. And, I don't know how to explain it, but if we were, if we had been riding motorcycles around town today and I had been putting stuff in and out of my saddlebags, 
how much faffing about would there have been versus just throwing shit in and out of the Vespa glove box? Uh, well, 25 four, minutes of just stops, not moving. With, the four stops we made enough to be incredibly terse with you at the start of this episode. Like, but it was just the it was just oh I'll just throw it in and out it's no problem it doesn't matter yeah it's, it's, every problem on a motorcycle in terms of luggage and stowage which is apparently in actual real motorcycle traveling terms ninety percent of problems ninety percent of optimizations is horrendous. Like, this is, like, a 10x improvement. Oh, my God. It's amazing. It's like, oh, turn your ignition key here, and here's 10 liters of storage. And throw everything in. Well, I, I already came up with the explanation of what it is. And it cannot be, it cannot possibly be original. Okay. It's the motorcycle fanny pack. Yeah, that was a perfect way to describe it. You were like, this is what it must be like. Because we were talking the helmets. You're like, this is this is what it must be like if it was socially acceptable to, to just wear a fanny pack. And I was like, well, scooters are kind of a motorcycle fanny pack in terms of optics. But <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, I know what you're saying. Yes, it. I. I think I can realistically hold just as much in the glove box of the Vespa as I can in one of the saddlebags on the Goldwing. That might be a little bit adventurous, well, but no, 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 no because because think about think be about close. the limitations when it comes to dimensions, right? the The glove box is a lot taller, while it's not as deep. Right, it's like a much taller and narrower glove box, but it let has me, a gigantic me, fucking side hatch to it. That's true, but let me keep in mind that we did kill a beer getting back to my apartment only because you refused to take the toolkit out. Okay, that's true. If you took the toolkit out, you could hold twelve tall boys in your glove box. You just keep trying to prove that you can that you can move twelve tall boys and keep your toolkit in the glove box. But no, I did it before. No, you didn't. No, I did. I told I closed the box and it worked, and then the beer shifted and came in front of the mechanism, and then it burst. Okay, whatever. It's legit. I have a legit photo. It's fair. It's totally for a game. No. I did it. <laughs> anyway, yes. You can transport two, two six-packs of, of tall boy beers in on your Vespa in the glove box. No problem. And that's not even like a realistic idea of the volume of shit you can carry because it's because you can't pack 12 tall boys efficiently. There's all kinds of empty space still inside that. It's a little bit of, there's actual, 
There's a... Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a little bit of a Lego game you've got to play. Like, it gets very interesting how you have to stack the beers to actually make it I work. think you could get 16 regular size cans in, no problem. Well, also, this is largely irrelevant. This is this is mainly a bragging game because in, what you can also do is just carry... Sorry, not 16. I think you could get 24 regular size cans. Well, not 24. No. Eight, you could get 18 24 size... 20, uh, 18 12-ounce cans. I'm gonna well, have to. I'm gonna have to see the math on that because that, that that's really hard. But it, it's totally irrelevant because with the grocery bag hook, you can also just fit a twelve pack either side, double bagged, in plastic grocery bags next to your feet. Oh yeah, with my rear luggage bag, I, I think I could. I think I could carry a hundred beers. That's totally possible. Yeah. <laughs> no, this this is purely a. Well, no. Th- I okay. think I think I think with my with my rear luggage rack, a twenty four uh twenty four case on either side of my floor bags plus what goes in the uh the glove box, I I I think I can carry a hundred beers. Maybe I got to yeah, put a few probably. in my pockets, but I can carry a hundred beers on the scooter. That sounds about right. Yeah. No, it. it I I just thought it was awesome. Yeah, that without it is. any improvisation <laughs> whatsoever. Well, yeah. Look, on, on Scooter I, Dan's looking... recommendation, I have a quart of two-stroke oil and a quart of whiskey in my glove box, and I don't even think about how much space they're taking up. Yeah. Yeah, I I can't disagree with that. I have okay. I have, well, well, the one thing I will say is we're gonna have to do a reduction in when we show up to band camp because we're gonna have to fit a six pack each in our glove compartments on ice. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, let's let's move on to the next segment. Okay. Okay, so we've had like hundreds of emails since we took this hiatus. Maybe not hundreds, but a lot of emails. I'm less I'm, than a hundred, more than dozens. It's been a lot of emails. It doesn't matter. I have not read them all. I've read hardly any of them, honestly. But I'm probably going to read through all of them like this week. I have read all of them. Okay. I'm sure a lot of them were a lot of people confused as to why we were taking a hiatus. I'm sure a lot of them were people pissed. I'm sure a lot of them were people being understanding and everything in between. But I will actually correct you here. Okay. Literally... 100 percent totally understanding and 
supporting us and wanting us to get back on the show, but understanding if we don't and wanting us to do it in our own time. Oh, okay. Literally. <laughs> okay. Well, that's better than I assumed. <laughs> um, like, I, I, I 100% genuine support. I kind of needed to take a break from the whole show, so I didn't read the emails. But I'm going to go through them and go through all of that. So whatever things that they have that are requests of things for us to cover or whatever, like the normal email stuff we'll get to when we've both read them. I don't know what's in them, you know, but normally the emails ask us like questions. They have things about their bikes. They have, you know, the, the emails provide lots of direction and content for the show. Well, there's been a very clear direction, which is please, more episodes if well, you could please well we're certainly doing that today we're at like <laughs> two and a half hours and we have like two more sections of this show to go so it's gonna be like a big marathon three hour show for people which after this much time i think people will be happy it's with. fair right so one thing that people have asked for since the like the first week of the show people have sent us emails asking for advice on buying and selling on craigslist okay how are we breaking this down okay so i we're gonna so, go full buying and then full selling or yes well full i i want to go full selling and then full buying okay because recently we both sold bikes but you sold one to dad I have sold actually quite a few things on Craigslist through the years. I sold the CB1000. That's true. Uh, I, but I've not sold a bike that I haven't bought. <laughs> but also I have started to hoard a lot of bikes. But you know what? I Look, I, okay. am, I am very <laughs> good at Craigslist. And I will back this up by saying I recently sold a motorcycle, my Superhawk on Craigslist, and got my asking price. Look, well, here's the thing. I will say, hold on. I don't think you heard me. <laughs> I sold a vehicle on Craigslist and got my asking price. <laughs> that was the price I gave you to sell it for. And I was wise enough to ask an outside <laughs> source what I should be selling it for. <laughs> Is my retort. Look. I asked for an outside opinion because I just <laughs> didn't go with whatever fancy fit into my mind. So, but it's not just that. I, I've, I've, I, I do Craigslist business and I, and I think I'm pretty good at it. So first of all, a lot of people are tempted to do buying and selling on Facebook Marketplace. And, you know, yeah, I, I if you want to buy and sell things on Facebook, you know, I, I wish nothing but good for you. But God help you. And here's the reason. Facebook, uh, sorry, Craigslist is by far and away 
the best place to buy and sell vehicles. Like, bar none. And the reason is... They have no magical technology whatsoever. It's purely mechanical in the logic. In that they put a price on listing an ad. $5. That's it. Which is nothing. It's not even 1% of your sale price. Guaranteed, no matter what you're selling. Right. Because if you're fishing for a scam, one in 10,000 is 0.5 cents. I do. And if you have a $5 price tag on listing an ad, that makes phishing attempts obsolete. Yes. Which means that when you list something, somebody knows that you're serious. This is also representative of the genius of Craig, who, you know, I've been getting very serious into coding and web design over the last year. And it's become obvious to me what a hero in the industry Craig is, because it's all still maintained by just the dude, Craig, if you don't know that, by the way. And wow. What a sight of nothing but just pure function, sleek, super simple design, like nothing over the top bells and whistles. Like when was the last time Craigslist didn't work for you? When was the last time you clicked on something and it didn't go where you wanted it to go? It in its simplicity and its gigantic scope. It is a beautiful thing. It's going to have a special place in my heart for a long time. Yeah. Even as far as like the little, like the little subtle touches that you don't realize. Like I remember Craigslist back in the late nineties when it had that super duper hardcore, like, um, uh, like shades of grayscale color on it <laughs> and the peace symbol. And now it has like the vertical Craigslist and the peace symbol as like a watermark in the background that you don't know is there unless you're looking for it. It's I love it's really beautiful from from a web design oh. standpoint. It's better than Facebook. I and love that's a serious level of sleek design. OK, so. This is also just a level of evolving with the times and also keeping up with the times is the fact that if I have like 20 or 30 tabs open on my browser, I know where my Craigslist tab is because it is a peace sign. (laughs) okay the fact that you as an internet company got to hold on to the peace sign as your like yeah your web that's insane you got to own the peace sign yeah like we all know what it means yeah yeah if you see a person a purple peace sign in your tabs like you shoot right over to it. So and yeah, for 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 for, 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 for very many deep reasons, 
Craigslist is still at the top. And and I am per, a lot of some people were turned off by the $5 request to list vehicles for sale. I think it's the greatest thing that happened to Craigslist because when you're yes. looking for vehicles on Craigslist, you're in a much much more serious level of buyers and sellers than you are on Facebook Marketplace. Yes. And it is primarily a better place because Craigslist doesn't have better buyers. Craigslist has better sellers. Yes. And that's where I would like to start this discussion on buying and selling shit on Craigslist. Is this going to become a two-part episode? No, no, this is, we're just going all the way through this. So, okay. So you're going to, you're going to buy and sell on Craigslist. Here we go. Here's selling it. Okay. Number one. Sort your fucking bike out. Okay. If you're the person that's willing to put $5 up to sort your bike on Craigslist, you are much more likely to be the kind of person that has settled all the little issues with it. If it needed new brake pads, you're much more likely to be the person that put new brake pads on it. So make sure you fucking do that. Right? Make sure you've changed fluids. Like, get it ready. If it's... If you want to sell a bike that has problems, that's okay. You can sell a bike on Craigslist that's been crashed. You can sell a bike that has major cosmetic flaws. You can sell a bike that has a wrecked motor. It's okay. It's okay. But if you're selling a bike that has easily fixable problems, you should fix them first. It's going to be worth it because you're going to get more money out of selling it than you put into fixing those problems. So it's to your advantage as a seller, then rather than just go, I need to unload this thing, I'll sell it cheap and someone can, someone else can just deal with it. It's actually to your advantage to sort those problems and then sell it on as advertised as a vehicle that quote needs nothing. Now, as the seller, you may think, well, maybe, you know what? This is over my head and I don't know how to do this. And rather I just get rid of it and fuck you. No. If you, Every single system, every single part on a motorcycle was designed by a human being. You are also a human being. Also, these things were designed to be surfaced by people. Right. This was every single part on your motorcycle is a part that was designed by a human that was designed to be serviced by another human. You can do this. If you decide not to, or you think this is out of your scope, you're a loser. Yeah, you're not going to get what you want for it, and that's going to be your lot. 
okay. It's 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 going to be an unadvertised mechanics special. So there yeah, we go. Just get it done. So number two. This sounds super simple, but it is shocking how many times I've looked up a bike, been interested in it, gone to see it, and the owner doesn't have the title. They lost it. It's at a friend's house. It's in another state. Their mom has it. It's got to be mailed to them. They're Whoa. waiting on a new one to come from the BMV. Now, I'll admit I'm slightly guilty of this in that no, we, when I sold the Super Hog a couple weeks ago, <laughs> my title was at your place. But at least that was only five minutes away. Well, technically, if you take the bisection, we experienced the trifecta. Oh, yes. Within a square matrix, which they said it can't be done, but we pulled it off of... Uh, trying to buy two big ruckuses. (laughs) (laughs) Of which only one was present. Of which also only one title was present of the other big ruckus. (laughs) Yes. So, be ready to sell your bike, okay? Like, holy shit. Like, you should be ready to sell your bike. So, on top of having the title, you would be amazed how much easier you're going to sell your bike if it also has current tags on it. Well, I'm... I'm Okay, I, I, I'm with you. No, no, Swiggs, I know what you're going to say. This is not a 100% rule all the time. It depends on the vehicle. But also, I buy a lot of weird shit. Okay, if you were going to buy a CBR600R without current tags. I wouldn't. Exactly. Right? If you were going to buy, like, an 82 V Max and it didn't have current tags, well, that's a different story. Yes. If you were going to buy... A Gucci Eldorado without current tags. Go well, fuck yourself. Well, right? no, I would because it would have dealer plates. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> but 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 yeah, you, you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, this is yeah. A, this is a, if it's a vintage bike or something special. Okay, yeah. maybe well, not. Well, but you, if you're selling your bike, you should know what the context of your sale. But will in the be. majority of cases, it's only going to cost you like. to put these tags on it and it's going to give the buyer a hundred dollars of confidence in buying it. Yeah. Right. In, in, in most cases, 80 to 90% of cases, come on, just put the tags on it. Okay. Tell, and then it gives you, you can tell them, yeah, I write it all the time. I, I wrote it to work today, you know, like it's currently being written and it's going to give that confidence in the buyer. Okay. Spend the $40 and fucking register the goddamn bike. Okay. Put the time in to do it. Okay. This is the next. Okay. Next item. This is one of my biggest fucking things with people selling bikes. 
If you're selling a bike on Craigslist, oh my God, clean the fucking bike. I don't need it to be clean, like on the underside of the swing arm. But if I show up to buy a bike and the owner couldn't even be bothered to spray it off with his garden hose, I have no fucking confidence in buying this bike. I don't believe this guy has changed the fork oil. I don't believe he's changed the brake fluid. I don't believe he's done jack shit to this fucking bike. It's sort of like showing up to the bank and seeing a teller with crack eyes. There's there's a very quick internal vote of no confidence. One of the greatest things I've ever heard in buying and selling vehicles was from one of my maybe my favorite tv show ever outside of mash no mash is my favorite tv show ever but my second favorite tv show ever was wheeler dealers (laughs) yes have you watched max headroom i love max headroom i love wheeler dealers more (laughs) so yeah, Wheeler Dealers was the the British car show with Ed China and um, I can't remember the other guy's name, but that's so crazy because the because Ed China was my favorite on the show, but the other guy said the thing that I love the most, which was, um, "You can polish money into a car. You would be amazed." That if you just spent one hour polishing your bike, just get out the turtle wax or whatever you've got, and just just the hour before they show up, you will get paid like 50 to 60 bucks an hour for that polishing. They will pay you hundreds of dollars more for that clean bike instead of the dirty one it doesn't make any logical sense right like i was happy to pay the 1250 for the dirty ass goldwing that i bought but you know i spent half an hour going over it like wiping parts of it clean to see how it was underneath all of that gunk whereas most people would have shown up and seen a dirty gold wing in a trailer that had been sitting there for years and gone, I'm not interested and walked off. But I'm a different kind of buyer. Your average buyer wants to show up and see a bike that looks like the kind of bike they want to be seen on. Well, there's another element to this, and it's purely psychological. Which is, you cannot, you know, strictly, you cannot polish money into a bike more than what the minimum wage to wipe the dust off your bike is. No, I I disagree. If it's reasonably clean, but... 
Well, if it's clean to begin with, no. No. Well, what you can do is you can polish a profit into your bike. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. By instilling a vote of confidence into the condition. Yes. That is what you're actually doing. What you're actually doing is polishing confidence into your bike. Yeah. It's essentially the same thing. Just yeah, but the, okay, you 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 you're saying the mechanics different, but but the but the ultimate saying remains true. You can polish money into a bike. Like you, yeah, the cleaner it is when they show up, the more they're going to pay for it. I mean, even if the bike is perfectly polished, if it's in front of a crack house, it may. Well, we're going to get to that as well. <laughs> so the next thing is know about the bike. This seems obvious as well, but I have recently shown up. To see gold wings where people had never even operated the air compressor. Weren't even sure it was a feature of the bike. Hadn't ever opened up the cover for the CB radio controls to the point that the lock on the cover for it was dried up. And it took them two days of injecting WD-40 into that lock to get it open to text us back to say oh yeah it, it does have a cb radio guys do you want to come and buy it still no we didn't <laughs> you asshole that don't even know about what you have like if it, if you're a buyer and seller of shit you just come into something and you're selling it again i know about it google some shit about i have a new phrase in my life like when stupid shit happens which is Clearly, nobody like uh, nobody asked me or even Googled this is like my, my new catchphrase. Like nobody asked me or even Googled this. Like, it, 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 oh, wow. You need to know that the person that's showing up to buy this has almost certainly Googled this. You need to just know the basic information. You need to know what, even if you never had an issue with this bike, what the common issues are with the bike. Yeah. What, Look, were there recalls? Were, what, is, there a, is there a common mod that people do? Because when the person shows up, they're going to ask, did you do this mod? Did you do this recall? Look, when somebody shows up to buy your bike, it's not... A one in a thousand instance of antiques roadshows scene. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're not about to tell you, did you know that your bike is worth a hundred thousand dollars? <laughs> you are still on the hook, and you are still in an adversarial mindset. And with that in mind, you should know why your bike is interesting. And if you know why your bike is interesting, especially if it's an old bike, you should know why it might be a hazard and what might be unreliable 
and you should have answers for your buyer as to why you have mitigated those things. Or to say that you have specifically not mitigated those things, and that's why the price is what it is. But, in any case, you should know about it. You should have answers. Yes. Like I said, it's it's okay to sell a bike at a big discount because you have not fixed problems or because you don't because you haven't addressed issues but you do have to at least know about them right yeah yes um which comes into the next one which is especially if you have a bike that's 20 years old this, but it this, has extensive documentation right. Th- this next <laughs> issue should have been higher on the list uh, honestly which is be honest with your ad if like don't put up an ad okay like seriously like super seriously be 100% transparent with your ad because it is it is only going to bite you in the ass you need to be forthcoming with like the maintenance you need to be forthcoming with the cosmetic appearance you need to be forthcoming with the miles, with the reliability, with, you know, a sort of one out of ten score for the bike. I mean, seriously. Because there, there probably is a buyer for your bike. But if you're trying to pay, paint your bike in the best light and everyone's coming at it thinking they're going to buy a nine and it's a six or a seven... They're all going to walk away and you are going to end up showing your bike to 20, 30 people and not selling it, just wasting a shitload hundreds or even thousands of dollars worth of your time, depending on how much you think your time is worth. Yeah. At any time, you also have to think about the fact that over the course of your life in the stock market how much is your money worth how much is your time worth your goal in selling a bike is being efficient plus whatever your whatever your goodwill is to pass on to your pass your bike on to somebody who you think will take good care of it, who will get the most out of it. Like, if you're selling a bike, you're getting some cash back, but really you're always losing if it's a bike that's actually really valuable. Yeah. So I think I think this so, cuts us to, to the, the, uh, the next one, which is... Um, Be ready to sell your bike, which basically means like I I have shown up to see bikes, which I was ready to buy. And the person wasn't ready to sell it. 
Well, they were really good example of this. I, well, I well, yeah, I, I well, I mean, <laughs> I have so many examples of this. We could go into it, but um, I mean, seriously, I, I've shown up to see bikes where the person was being pressured by their wife or girlfriend to list it, and they weren't going to accept a price that wasn't well over what the bike was worth, right? And I've shown up to see bikes where, you know, they didn't they they were missing simple things like a battery in the bike and the title and whatever they or and, keys or keys. Yeah, they, they just weren't. They or had both. The bike wasn't <laughs> the bike wasn't ready to sell. It wasn't in a condition to sell. It was they in a condition where you could not legally drive off right with the vehicle it, it, but it was because obviously they were not in an emotional state to have it ready you need to be ready to part with it yes and that's a big thing it is and and well, and also this is something also that we've been always we've always been good with this because well we know there's more bikes to have there's a there's a bigger road going on but also it's also been a um a multi-month emotional trajectory to make it actually happen that's true We've always, like, I mean, you've been talking about selling the Superhawk for at least f- three months. Right. But it was like, the the first the first time you said it to me, it was like, bullshit, you're not ready to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then, like, two months, it was like, okay, you're kind of getting there. <laughs> a month, it was like, in a pinch, if you had to, you could do it. For the right price. And then, like, you know, two weeks ago, it was like, okay, you're ready to do this. Right. But what? for for this, for the seller, do not post it unless you are actually ready, emotionally, to say at any right. moment, this can be out of my life. And this is a two-parter, because... When you're emotionally ready to sell it, that you know you're emotionally ready to sell it when you know what your drop dead price is. Yes. What what is the number? What is the lowest number you'll take? Right? What is that? And when you know that number and you know that you won't go that number in the first week, but maybe in the second or third week you'll take it, that's when you're ready to sell it. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that you cannot list a bike that will not ultimately be sold. Okay, it next can one. Be, it can be that you won't sell it because your drop-dead price is too high for the market. That's totally... That's like a one in a thousand chance, but that's also a legitimate scenario. Okay, I got another one for you. When when you're selling a bike, set the scene. Now, I was talking yes. about how I sold my Superhawk for asking price, right? Now, how did I sell my Superhawk for asking price? 
Well, I cleaned the fuck out of it. I made sure I had the title. Well, I thought I had the title. It was actually at your place, but it was five minutes away. I mean, I had a clear title on me, <laughs> essentially. Um, the bike was clean. I Not only that, though, like I did all these other things. You know, uh, First of all, I was very forthcoming in the ad. I advertised everything that was cosmetically wrong with it. I was very accurate about its actual state of being the i think the i think the asking price that we listed it for was um was a good price but it was probably 10 percent high which well i guess hold on we should well i should skip to one of our things here was when you're ready to sell it list it for 10 percent above what you want to sell it for yes so but I actually got that 10%. And here's why I got it. Which is the last Did bit here. Did you present yourself as an emotionally and financially stable person? Is I that what you did? I did better than that. So here's what I did. I had the day off. And I thought, you know, there's nothing wrong with the look of my house. But I had the day off and my kids were with my ex-wife and I had some time and I thought, you know what? I'm going to edge my grass and I'm not just going to wash the, obviously I'd wash the super hawk the day before because I'd listed it. But I'll wash the Superhawk again, and I'll wash the Goldwing, and I'm going to wash my car, and I'm going to wash the trailer, and I'm going to put concrete cleaner on the driveway, and I'm going to mow the backyard, and I'm going to spray off the side of the house, and I'm going to just do all the things. Just, Just as I'm waiting for this guy to show up, I'm just, I'm setting the scene. And when he showed up, I am this to to all for all he knows, much more organized, successful dude sitting there. Like when he showed up, I was in like gardening outfit, like pulling, pulling weeds and spraying them with um, with a roundup and shit, like in the cracks of my driveway. Like, you know, I'm hitting those finer details. Well, no, actually, I, I no, no, that's not even true. I'd hit those in my driveway. I was actually hitting weeds that were in between the gutters and the actual asphalt of the road, like towards the edge of my property, you know, and he pulls up in the car and I'm like, oh, are you here to see the bike? And all he sees is this dude hitting details that are like way beyond the scope of his life. So. When we walk up to the bike and it starts up cold first time and it just idles perfectly for 20 minutes and we're talking, you know, and he's like, oh, yeah, there's the there's the crack that you showed in the, the fairing, but everything else is clean and whatever. It's like we get to the we get to the point where we talk about money and he has nowhere to go. 
right? Because normally someone advertises a bike better than it is. And then you can say, oh, well, you advertised it this way, but the tires or the whatever, and you negotiate the price down. And he really had nowhere to go. So he just gave me his full envelope of money. And that was it. So that's how you fucking sell a bike or anything on Craigslist. You know, you think there's a lot of ways to take shortcuts or, you know, do the whole like, so really don't treat it like social media. You know, the whole point of social media is to misrepresent yourself to be cooler than you are. It's like some sort of job resume with no consequences for being an asshole. But this is the real world. Right. You're buying steel. Treat it much more like an actual job resume, I guess. Yeah. It. Yeah. You have to be genuine. So. Okay. Now we've got to move on to being a Craigslist buyer because I have a rant here. Okay. Well, I also have to really piss, but also have to get some more beer. Okay. Well, you know what? No, fuck it. We're just powering through. So, okay, I'm angry. I Okay, this is the biggest problem. The, Facebook, not Facebook, Craigslist is a nearly perfect system, right? As we've described, as, as a website, as a user interface, it is perfect. It is, we have described how it is beyond trends. It is beyond the the complexities of trying to negotiate the the trends and the user needs and whatever. It just is the standard in and of by itself. It's this beautiful thing that is modern internet, right? Yes. No, it the was, only thing that's well, wrong not, with it is people that are trying to buy shit on it. And here (laughs) is, and here is the big thing. There's number one, there's the people that are trying to run scams on it. And the second biggest problem with it is people that are inept at buying shit. Four words. Is this still available? Yes. Do not ever ever send those words in email text voicemail semaphore anything okay smoke signals smoke signals i don't care braille by mail i don't care do not do that don't 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 Six more times. Don't, 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 don't. Don't. And, okay. Look, here's a, perf- all- here's a perfectly logical okay. reason why you shouldn't do that. That there's already because, an ad up that implies it is for sale, perhaps? Well, one, because if you send... Okay, let, let's go through the exercise here. Which is, if you send... A message to somebody to say, 
hey, I would like to buy this vehicle. When can I come and see it? That's the perfect response. Okay, so let's let's go through the simulation here. If the bike is for sale, then the person will respond with, with the time you could see it. Right. <laughs> and if the bike is not for sale, well, they'll tell you it's not or ignore you. Right. So, if we now step back one step and we ask for essentially an acknowledgement, the bike is for sale, do we, A, get either closer to making a purchase on the bike, or, on the other hand, do we exit out of the transaction any faster? Well, let's, no, put, I don't let's think... put it in more in like more tangible terms. So, like when I listed the Superhawk on Craigslist, right? The first two responses I got were obvious scam emails, right? In which I simply well, to one I responded. Okay, tell me more. And the other, I simply responded, okay, hoping to 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 scam bait them into a longer conversation that would become hilarious and maybe yeah. content for this show. But they didn't. Well, actually, there was a third one that I actually told to go fuck themselves as well, and I reported all three as as um, scams to Craigslist. Then I got about four or five more that just said, is this still available? And then I got somebody early in the morning that said, Hey, I'm very interested in buying this. Can I come and see it today? And I said, absolutely. Yes. I'm available to show it all day today. And he told me roughly when he would be there. And when he showed up, I had everything in order. And that was the guy that paid me full asking price for the bike. Also, because everything note. was in a line. And who did I ignore? These four people that just went, is this available? Because, I mean, I got all these responses of actual people that wanted to come see it all within like one hour. And who did I respond to? The guy that said, hey, I want to buy this. When can I come see it? Which, yeah. So if you look at all the other, well, one thing I will say is, that okay if you are asking is this available okay even somebody who is within the same time zone as you you have to realize that people have different work schedules they go to work they leave work they have family time they have all sorts of different obligations than you you don't ever have interaction on Craigslist where somebody responds to you in less than an hour. And more often than not, like 80% of the time, somebody doesn't respond to you in less than two hours. So one, 
you should be legitimate in your response. And two, if you have, if you yourself have a time frame in which you need to actually purchase this motorcycle, then this is insane. Like, on your own accord, this is insane. Well, sometimes you run into those things where someone is trying to sell something really quick. Like, I have a buddy who is really into the the too good to be to, to be true craigslist deals and he will send me texts like every three days of like dude look at this rv for two grand it's got a new motor in it with only three thousand miles and a perfect interior it's just the body has two hundred thousand miles on it should we get this and i'm like sure Ask them when we can come see it. And he just he just sends me a response where he goes, is it still available? And sends me the screenshot. And I'm like, we're not going to get it. Fuck you. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> if you want to get it, like, tell them that one of us will show up. Like, like I understand yeah. that we're an hour and a half apart. One of us will go see it if we really want to get it. But, like, it turns out if you want to acquire something... You may have to show intention. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So crazy idea. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So so if you're a Craigslist buyer, rule number one is be ready to buy. And, and I think I, th I, I've never heard any better example of this than Todd. From the uh, the the um, wheel nerds, the wheel nerds, talking about carping bikes, right? <laughs> he sits there and he's got his five or six thousand dollar little pool fund that he's ready to buy a bike with, right? Everyone else is sitting there with five hundred dollars, eight hundred dollars, twelve hundred dollars, maybe even twenty two hundred dollars, right? But he's sitting there with five, six thousand dollars to to buy a bike with, and he's just everyone else with their two thousand dollars is at the surface, yeah. and just, he's just, just picking there. Just and try, he, taking yeah. little nibbles at deals, but never getting them. And he is just waiting He's there. lurking. Right. Like the Leviathan <laughs> to <laughs> surge from the deep and grab the greatest deal of all time. He is absolutely ready to buy what he really fucking wants. But it's got to be what he wants. But he is ready to buy it. Right. Yeah. Too many people are on the other side of they want to buy everything, but they don't have the means or they're not confident. Quite often, people even do have the means. They're just not confident enough to buy it. They think, well, what if it's not perfect, though? What if it like what if it has issues, though? Well, just go see. Right. Just go. Well Fucking no. spend your afternoon and see. If you're that interested, go and fucking see. I'm going to add another layer onto this. Which is, 
if you think that you're out of your depth making a purchase because it's your dream motorcycle that you just came across in the last month and you've been oozing over it but you don't really know all the mechanics of the bike and you don't know what it is and how it works and you don't know if you can make it work and it may not be quite working in the way that you want it to be or what is spec i'm gonna throw one thing at you here which is every mechanical device that has been made by that has been sold is something has been made and designed and intellectualized and conceived by a human you are also a human if you are a reasonably confident person then you may not have original ideas but at the very least you can conceive and understand ideas conceived by other humans so i know what you're getting at and i i want to like kind of like cut ahead of you on this one if i can which is i think this this the, i think what you're getting at is people are sometimes hesitant to buy a bike because they don't have x-ray vision they don't know if there's a, a deep hidden problem in the bike and they might unknowingly be buying a lemon. Yeah. And I, what I guess what I'm really saying is don't be a bitch. Ex well, here's, here's my answer to that, which is I think a buyer should be informed on what the seller should be doing. So here's how, here's how it comes to it. Right, a lot of people get hung up on mileage of bikes. Now, I've bought and sold a lot of bikes over the years, and not only that, I have bought and sold a lot of bikes with and for my friends. Right, I'm sort of this son that a lot of motorcycle things flow around. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of things buy and sell. I have never, ever witnessed a bike go off the road purely because of mileage. I have never actually witnessed a motorcycle engine wear out. I have seen motorcycles fall into so much neglect of maintenance that they break. But I've never oh, yeah. actually seen a properly maintenance motorcycle wear out. Well, yeah. I'm not even convinced, like, <laughs> actually convinced it's a thing yet. Well, no, like a motorcycle <laughs> engine seizing is kind of like a supernova. Like it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, oh well i have seized a motorcycle engine myself but it's because i neglected that engine so much that well, it did yeah that. because you didn't put the drain plug in 
No, I put the drain plug in. I just put the f- the filter on wrong. <laughs> but anyway, um, no, no, no. It, like, I've never actually seen an engine like just expire because of mileage itself, just like wear itself out. I've I've never in twenty plus years of of, of riding motorcycles, I've I've personally never witnessed it. It's actually exceedingly rare. If you show up to buy a motorcycle well, and it's clean and the person's house is clean and their yard is clean and they are clean and everything is as it should be and the bike starts up like it should be and you have maintenance questions and they have answers for those maintenance questions and they have both original keys and the title and the title and all these things i've never known mileage and where to be an issue when all those mm. other circumstances are in order yes. i have never known mileage to be an issue ever well it's like when we showed up to to purchase the stella and we showed up in the neighborhood and you're like this is a really nice neighborhood. This is a golf course neighborhood. And then we pulled into the yard and we pulled on the street and we saw the bike. And you said, Jonathan, it has current tags. Yeah, I was excited that it had <laughs> current tags. Yeah. And not only that, but he had obviously washed it and he had mowed his yard. And it was like on display, like he had parked it in his driveway for it to be on display, you know? Yeah. Like everything was in order. He made it really easy for us to ride the, for us to, to buy the bike. You know, he was a good seller. He was a good seller. Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, but, but right now we're talking about being the buyer, right? So, Here's, here's another part of being the buyer, right? Everyone thinks you have to show up with all of the cash. You don't. I mean, it doesn't hurt. But if you've just got like 500 bucks to throw down as a deposit, that's okay. But you do have to be ready to buy it. And you do have to be ready to walk away. So if you're ready to buy it, you can't say, hey, bro. I want to buy it. Can you hold it till tomorrow? Because guess what's not going to fly? Someone else is going to show up the next day or later that day. And they'll give that guy two, three, four, five hundred bucks to hold it. And then they'll come back the next day and buy it. And you won't get it. You don't have to have all the money on you per se. But you should have like five hundred bucks. And you should have the rest of the money in your bank account ready to go. If not, just all the cash right away. Well, no. It's okay. Or if you're, if you're, if, you know, but here's the thing. Like some people say it's fine if you just got the money in your bank account, you and the guy can go take a drive to the bank. But what if the only time you can go and see it is an hour before you or him or her have to go to work right no i say that's perfectly legitimate perfectly legitimate 
And I say, if you have deposit money, it's legitimate. No, that's life. Look, no, I I think you have to have. I think you have to have deposit money. You do. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, no. Everybody has deposit money. If you both travel to the bank, like. I'm yeah, but you might not have money. You might not have time to go to the bank just because of how your schedules line up. Like you said, everyone has things to do. That includes you and them. You might just only be able to meet for a half hour before both of you have to go to work. I don't give a fuck. Look, okay, how many people are listening to this podcast? Who need to buy a motorcycle on Craigslist or any other service and can't go to the bank within hours who are spending a hundred thousand dollars or more? No, I'm saying like, they, this is this is a narrow No, I'm market. saying you can go to the bank and you can transfer the money. You may not be able to do it in the hour that you go to see the bike. It may well, need to wait till the next day or the day after. I'm so sure it's you an should MBA have F one hundred. You should take out four or five hundred dollars, whatever your debit card, you know, limit is, and put that be willing to put that down as a deposit. In the deepest, darkest depths of the Everglades. Like, where is this happening? No, you're fund. You're too drunk to understand what I'm saying. It's okay. Here's what we're gonna do. <laughs> we're gonna hit the last points on being a good Craigslist buyer. And move on to the last segment of the show. So, um, the last thing about being uh, about buying a bike on Craigslist is again just like the buyer you should know about the fucking bike you should have also googled all the things that are maintenance issues that are questions if you didn't ask the question if you didn't ask if they did you know the maintenance well then it's all on you after you bought the bike right and then also be nice. You know? Like it doesn't hurt to get the guy who's selling the bike to like you, okay? Just show up and be fucking friendly. A lot of people I have found show up to these things adversarial, like it's some sort of crazy Middle Eastern bazaar. And you're going to almost have a knife fight over 10 cents over the cost of some fruit. And it's like, just <laughs> how about just spend a couple minutes and ask them about what kind of bikes they've had and what kind of bikes you've had and what kind of riding you've done. It's not going to hurt for them to just like you, you know, you'd be amazed how far that'll go on buttering them up before you start talking about price. If you I, just kind of <laughs> level with them, like you're both there because you love motorcycles, right? 
this is a weird situation where like well actually you know when I bought the W650 I only got the $350 off of the Craigslist ad because of the fact that the tires were 11 years old. Right. But after that, it was like, oh, well... Yeah, but after that, the bike was as advertised. Yeah. Yeah. But it it was a weird situation where it was... I don't know, but there's, well, there's always going to be a feel because on any bike of any year, I can put a price tag off of the wear and tear of the year and mileage of the tires. And, uh, of everything we're going to sell, everything we would sell or make a judgment on. Okay, you got to bring this up here. Like, you got to piece this together. I no, don't know where I, you're going with this. I feel like I'm lost here now. It's okay. All right. How about we just go to the next segment? Is there another segment? I know, right? This is a marathon episode. <laughs> okay. Okay, to round out this marathon three and a half or four hour or whatever the fuck long episode this is going to be of the Nokomoto podcast reboots, we are going to do the very first ever Nokomoto paper plate awards. Let's do it. Swigs, I asked you to come up with some of these. I'm going to guess you're too drunk to remember any of them. (laughs) But that's okay. At least two. You've got at least two? Okay. All right. Do you want to start or should I? I'll start. Uh, You should start. Okay. So if you're not familiar with the concept of paper plate awards, this is where we just assign a random notable attribute to a bike and we just award it on that so i i thought this was fun um so i want to give this year the ducati 916 the paper plate award of the motorcycle that has traveled most by elevator Now, some people might be a little confused as to what that means, as is the Ducati 916 has become sort of, I don't know if the most collectible bike, but definitely the coolest collectible bike, right? And it's a bike that has become especially collectible to people in urban areas that don't necessarily have a lot of parking space for collectible bikes. So I increasingly hear stories about people buying these things 
and then having to put them into elevators in their apartment complexes. And while it's not a small bike, it's not a gigantic bike, and it is conceivable that it will fit into most, if not all, elevators, especially if you get it up on the back wheel with a friend. And I see a lot of internet pictures of people <laughs> storing these in their, like, 8th, ninth, 20th story apartments. Like, you know, just sort of overlooking scenic city views <laughs> and whatever. So... I, I think I, I think I think it's a strong case that the Ducati nine one six is the motorcycle that has traveled most by elevator. <laughs> yeah. Swiggy thoughts. Uh when you say thoughts Well, I don't know, I can't dissuade it. In any way whatsoever. I think well, you don't have to refute it. Just do you have anything to add <laughs> about these kinds of people? Well, okay. If you're the sort of person who's willing to put. Okay. Okay. <sighs> so many thoughts. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. So if you're talking about motorcycles and elevators. Like so many of us do all the time. <laughs> well, there is, um, oh shit. Uh, okay. Well, how can you seem mystified when there is a blockbuster Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that covers all of these scenarios well that was a ninja 250 for starters and it was only 10 stories well well how do we not cover this i think we have talked about true lies before <laughs> <laughs> I will I will concede to you that the Ninja 250 is the most famous motorcycle to have ever traveled by elevator. <laughs> but you cannot tell me, you cannot make a convincing case that a motorcycle has traveled more by elevator than the Ducati 916. This is true because the Ducati has by far on record traveled most decadent yes <laughs> with no cgi <laughs> okay all right swig swigs do you have a motorcycle paper plate award to give us i do okay what have you got i have the motorcycle most traded for drugs okay <laughs> <laughs> and what is that the Honda Metropolitan. This is strong. <laughs> I'm just going to start <laughs> with that. Well, we're talking about something that has a $2,200 asking price. And also like a four horsepower motor. Actually, they're more like six or seven. It's amazing what they get out of just the 50. They tune them to the max. Really? Yeah. 
But, well, I mean, come on. How are you going to get 28 miles an hour or 26, you know, out of three? I mean, you know. And, and, you know, as we all know, um, horsepower and displacement is diminishing returns. But whatever. This is strong because we're talking about a vehicle that gets like, you know, it's what what are they twenty two hundred dollars asking price right something like that in that ballpark twenty two yeah in twenty twenty or twenty nineteen and yeah. and their resale value like their 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 value retention is so high because you don't need a license and you don't have to insure them or register them in most states yeah and and they get like ninety miles per gallon. Right. So it's like, well, how are you going to pay me less than a thousand dollars for a vehicle that does these things? Right. So you find people that come into one because they're super cheap vehicles to begin with, then they're down on their luck. And then they'll trade them for less than they're worth in drugs because they're mm-hmm. like, well, okay, it's a scooter and it's December. And then the dealer will sell it to someone else later on in the year. It's, I mean, it's just economics on this one. There's nothing to do with the desire of the vehicle or anything. It's just the vehicle that does the thing with the most reliability at the lowest price points, right? It's right. not it's nothing to do with the reputation of Honda or or even the reputation of the Metropolitan. It's just simply that it's that basic vehicle and it can be sold without a title without anyone giving a shit. Well, yeah, which is at this point, we need to we need to we need to discover: Are the police really on to Honda Metropolitans, or have they overcorrected, and are they on to Zumas way too much? I think both are invisible to the police. Okay, going up a little bit in displacement. This might be controversial. I want to give a paper plate award to the Honda Grom as the most wheelied vehicle ever. So here's my reason. I think you might be right. You know, the FZ7 was making... Uh, okay, if we want to go back in time, are we going, probably are we the saying... Jixxer 600 in the mid-90s was right. the most wheelied vehicle ever. The FZ07 was making a real strong case for the most wheelie vehicle ever. But as a real latecomer in the game, the Honda Grom. And, I, and the reasoning is, is that, you know, it's got... It's like a... Well, we didn't talk about this earlier with the scooters that we bought, but they are amazingly easy to wheelie. And we're talking about 
low weight vehicles that oddly have a pretty good torque to weight ratio with a very strong rear weight bias. And the Grom falls into this. Well, it's really easy to have a good torque to weight ratio when your wheelbase is four mm-hmm. feet long. Well, you mean the rear weight bias plus the torque to weight ratio. Yes, yeah. exactly. So Groms are incredibly easy to wheelie. And I, you know, I feel like out of the last 10 times I drove through Denver, at least five times I saw someone wheeling a Grom. Like when I was on surface streets in Denver, you know, and it's such a low stakes wheelie that it really emboldens people to do it. Right. (laughs) You say after you 12 o'clock, your PX 150 full disclosure of your children, full disclosure (laughs) on the day that I bought my scooter I twelve o'clock. Well, I well I looped it is what I did. I took it past twelve o'clock, and, <laughs> and I crashed it. <laughs> you know what? No regrets. <laughs> no regrets. And, and, you know, I've been told that this makes me scooter trash, and I'm okay with that. I'm totally okay with that. But yeah, I I well okay. Back me up, okay. I did before. Okay, I had been drinking. Okay, <laughs> but I did like six perfect wheelies first, right? I don't know if this helps you. <laughs> okay. Well, I did, right? I mean, I was going back and forth in front of my driveway just doing wheelies. You know, and all the and like my kids and Dr. Mike's kids and you know, by this point there were even a couple like just neighborhood kids that had lined up that were sort of like taking notice. Like everyone was out grilling, right? And you know, I was putting on a show. Like Swigs it was for the kids, okay? It was for the kids, right? And eventually, you know, I gave her a little too much. <laughs> and, and I crashed it, okay? But it's okay, right? Like, And this is the same thing with the Grom. Like, it's such a low-stakes wheelie. That I think everyone that buys a Grom learns to wheelie their Grom. You know... <sighs> and this is not true of Jixxer 600s. Yes, you cannot get Jixxer 600s up to 80 miles an hour to do a... Oh, you don't have to you do know, 80 miles an hour to, to wheelie a Jixxer. You got to take it like 25, 28, and you pop it in second. But, but whatever. The point is, is that Let's, it's... I, I get... I'm kind of getting the feeling that there are a lot of apologetics going on at this point. No, I'm just saying that the Grom is probably 
per owner, like the most wheelied vehicle of all time now. This is my paper plane award. I mean, okay, yeah. Okay, that that that, that is fair. Okay, what's what's your next paper plate award? What have you got? Uh... I know you're hammered. <laughs> I've got another one here if you need more time to remember. Uh... So moving on, my next paper plate award, I've got the CBR 1000R as the most inaccurately described motorcycle of all time. So famously, for like the last five to seven years, the CBR 1000R has been the superbike the one liter inline four superbike with the lowest power and the lowest torque and without brembo brakes so it has it has been described as slow slow to turn slow to brake when in fact we're talking about a sub 400 pound motorcycle with over 160 horsepower with brakes that are 95% as good as Brembo's with suspension 95% as good as Olin's, right? Like we've heard moto journalists call this thing slow. We have heard street racers and all kinds of people call this vehicle that's capable of 170 miles per hour. Slow, slow to turn, slow to stop, and in some cases, even flat out boring. My paper plate award for the CBR 1000R is the most inaccurately described motorcycle of all time thoughts well that's a little too nice for a paper plate award the paper plate award doesn't have to be mean it's just an exceptional observation well i well that i have a really answer really easy answer for mine then that's fine but thoughts on the cpr 1000 first i'm gonna try to hold this together as a concept for a segment well there's no answer which is if i was are you saying i'm correct in this observation well yes Okay, that's that's all you had to say. That's the logical answer. (laughs) Well, I mean, do you have anywhere to expound on this, perhaps? An extra? Something to add? Well, I could narratively. Okay, that would be welcome. (laughs) That's how this works. (laughs) Okay. Well, yes, there are... A whole bunch of douchebag journalists who have decided that 
Oh, well, after five or six years of incremental refinement, that they're bored of the CBR 1000 RR. We have to accept, just as the general public, that they are insane. Right. Not only that, it, like as as the uh, as the desire to have the fastest one liter sport bike has waned, you know. But also, how did that not wane ten years ago? Well, it doesn't matter, or but, even but, fifteen years ago. But we know it has waned now. And five years ago, there was still a desire. To be on the fastest leader bike, you know, with the S one thousand double R, right? Five years ago, the S one thousand double R was the, was the toast of the town as the most powerful or, one leader well, one no, leader it, bike, it, right? It was it was the fact that ten years ago, one percent of the population was willing to pay to have the fastest bike. Right, but but plenty of people but, still admired that one percent. Yeah, the the S one thousand double R was the toast of the town. The, right. There's no denying that. But right? at, at this and point, at that today, time, the CBR one thousand double R was at the bottom of the barrel, and therefore, even though it still was unbelievably fast, way too much horsepower for mortal people. Right. Was described as, and still is described as slow, slow to turn, slow to break, poor handling, which none of these things are true when you put them in the turn. I mean, within within the uh, what's what's realistically expected of riders or even. A lot of very experienced riders. You have to get into the area of highly expert riders, highly expert track riders, until they start to even begin coming close to the limits of this motorcycle. Yes. And that's why it is the most in inaccurately described motorcycle of all time. Most misrepresented. I think. There's an argument there, yeah. Alright. Do you have mm. another paper plate award? Mm. You don't have to. We can just end everything here. We okay. could, but I had one that I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This okay, I I actually I actually I do have one okay, which is, uh, the bike sold by the most unprepared seller. Okay, and that is the SV six fifty. Okay, give give us your reasoning on this one. Well, for one. Can you think of a bike that has been sold successfully the most without a title? 
Well, that would be the SV650, but it's often sold as a track bike. Well, yes. And when someone's buying a track bike, they don't give a shit about a title because they're like, well, I'm just going to crash it in a couple months. <laughs> and like, well, I'm going to crash it six times over the next couple well, months. Well, yes. And eventually but that's putting it'll it will just disintegrate. Well, exactly. So it's putting it into that element. Is there any other bike? Is anybody else buying a a 650-ish twin without a title that they're taking to the track? I mean, there must be some Ninja 650s, but that's about it. Maybe. But well, definitely. <laughs> but but what have you seen? Just SVs and Ninja six fifties. I'm pretty confident in this. I think if the any SV... listener wants to, if any listener wants to provide, if any rapper, yeah. Well, so <laughs> I think I think where this comes down to is. We for for any listeners that have made it this far in, uh, for the next episode, we want to hear your paper plate awards for for motorcycles. All right, and we'll wait a couple episodes. We'll wait a few weeks for them to come in, and uh, maybe we'll we'll do a roundup on some listener motorcycle paper plate awards. You know what? You send in any motorcycle paper plate award, and we'll 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 at least review it and put it up to scrutiny. There we go. There you go. So we're at a lot of time. Uh, we're either at three and a half hours or four and a half. I think it's three and a half, but the the timer is reticked over, so it's just showing twenty six <laughs> minutes. So I think it's time to end it. We've given you a long episode. You wanted a long one. You've needed a long one. We wanted to do a long one. You know, we recorded like an hour and a half episode before this, but it didn't feel like one of our episodes. So we we came back to give, give it another pass. And, well, this is the best we could do. <laughs> Shut it down. So. All right. With that. Let's see. Does my phone still have any battery? Oh, just barely. All right. You ready to do this outro, Swigs? Do it. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Couldn't have done it without PBR hard coffee. Thank <laughs> you.